Hi guys. So when we left deep water the last time, Shane and Julie have seen a light and they're trying to get to it. So today we're going to read chapter 24. I saw that Shane wasn't going to be able to get moving on his own. I got in front of him, went under and lifted his legs until he was floating on his back. Grab them with your arms, I said. Try to pull your knees to your chest. He began to move his arms slowly toward his knees. I grabbed his hand and helped him. I watched him clutch the neoprene of his wetsuit at the knees. He tugged at it until the rubbery material popped loose. I became frustrated. I put one arm behind his neck and one behind his knee, cradling him like a baby, and folded his left leg up to his chest. Now straighten it, I said. He slowly straightened the leg, and a wave of hope passed through me. I swam around to his other side, did the same thing, then let him bob upright again. Try now, I said. I put my face into the water and watched his legs as he was able to slowly bend and straighten them. Afraid of losing more time, I grabbed his arm and began pulling him. Keep working them, I said. Gradually, Shane was able to start kicking enough to take away some of my burden. But the red light still appeared an impossible distance away, and I began to doubt that we'd actually make it. Current direction changes all the time, and I was basing our heading on information that was over a day old. But at least trying, trying got us both moving again and warmed us up. After nearly an hour of steady swimming, I was exhausted. I got a final compass bearing and saw that it was now mostly southeast of us. And until we narrowed the distance some and really saw how we were drifting, there was no sense in wasting more strength. Are you okay, I said. My teeth are chattering again, he said, but at least I can swim a little. That thing doesn't seem any closer. I think it is, I said. It certainly isn't any farther away, which is good. What if it's land? What if it's an island? I don't know how it could be, I said. There's no way, so don't get your hopes up. How can I not get my hopes up? It's probably the last chance we've got. We're dying, Julie. If that light doesn't help us, we're finished. Let's rest and save our energy, I said. We're going to have to swim some more when we get closer. You may have to work my legs again, he said. Okay, I said. I didn't want to tell him, but now my legs and arms were getting stiff too. If we were going to make it at all, we needed to make it fast. For two more hours, we paddled steadily while the red light appeared to rise very slowly above the horizon. Gradually, I discerned a patch of darkness beneath it. We were probably a mile away when I knew what it was. An oil rig, I said. Shane didn't respond. I felt myself become overwhelmed with hope. Shane, I think it's a floating oil rig. I'll bet they have ski jackets, he mumbled. What are you talking about? And beach towels. I realized he was delirious in the advanced stages of, of hypothermia. I grabbed my compass and got a reading. It's a little bit more to the west, I said. We need to swim harder. Can you do it? Sure, I can do it. I'm on the cross-country team. I cradled him and tried to force his knees to his chest, but his muscles were much stiffer this time. I couldn't even get him into a sitting position. Ugh, I groaned, frustrated. I grabbed his knee and shoved it hard, but it only pushed him away from me until he came tight against the line. I watched him bob upright again. Let's call a taxi, he said. It was all I could do to stay calm. I pulled him to me again and began rubbing his legs, but my arms were stiff too and I couldn't apply much pressure. Get my cell phone, he said. There's no taxis or phones, I said. You have to swim, Shane. You have to try. It's in my pocket. I started shaking and coughing. As dehydrated as I was, it was as close as my body could come to crying. I grabbed him by the straps of his BCD and shook him. We came too far for this, Shane. He stared back at me quizzically. I thought about the consequences of leaving him. 
and I was forced to consider something about the rig that had been bothering me. There should have been more than one red light on it. It should have been lit like an amusement park if there were people working and living on it. What if there's nobody on that thing, I said. I can't send anybody for you. It's okay, he said. No, it's not okay. I turned him on his back, grabbed his arm, and began kicking, dragging him like a log. My legs were so stiff and numb that it seemed like my fins barely moved. I didn't know if it was possible to make it, but I knew I couldn't live with myself if I left him. It rose before us like an abandoned steel city supported nearly a hundred feet above the surface by four enormous floating columns and a crosswork of beams connecting them. As I struggled to pull us closer, I began to hear water licking and slurping through the massive beams at its understructure. Otherwise, there was no sound coming from it at all, only the soft red glow of the hazard light from the top of the derrick. My body was about to shut down. I had to force every kick, all the while fearing I couldn't make it. We were going to pass within a hundred yards, but that hundred yards might as well have been a mile. It wasn't possible. I can't do it, Shane, I sputtered. I can't make it. But Shane wasn't answering. He hadn't said a word since I had started dragging him. Part of me wanted to stop and check on him to see if he was still breathing, but I reasoned that it didn't matter now, and I really didn't want to know. I stopped swimming and let go of Shane and floated there, staring at the black wall towering over us. I had never felt such helplessness. I could only watch myself drift from the last chance of ever seeing my parents again, continuing on into complete darkness, a final goodbye to life. Chapter 25 I felt something tap my side. I immediately thought of sharks and spun and kicked. In the faint light of the sky glow, I saw a long seam in the water next to me. I reached out and touched a rope as big around as my arm. I grabbed it and felt it move heavily atop the surface. A mooring line. Shane! I shook him. Shane, I've got a rope! He muttered something I didn't understand. I began pulling myself along the rope, towing Shane behind me. Slowly, I drew us into the dark night of the rig. When we were about 50 yards away, the rope began to curve up into the air to a lower platform about 20 feet overhead. I was facing a cross-current swim to make it the rest of the distance to the understructure where I hoped to find something to climb onto. There was no way I could do it towing Shane with me. Listen, Shane, I said, can you hear me? He didn't answer. I'm going to have to tie you off to this rope while I try to get up there. Then I'll figure out a way to get you up, okay? No answer. I untied the line from my BCD and tied it to the mooring rope. This time, I doubled the strength of the line for safe measure. I'll be back, okay? Float here until I figure it out. I kicked toward the understructure. Fortunately, there were no tall waves. In rough seas, there would be no way to approach the steel beams without getting slammed and cut to pieces on the millions of barnacles cemented to every part of the lower structure. I could already hear the beams clicking and snapping as the gulf swells rose and fell over them. I pulled both of our sun masks out of my BCD pocket. The swells were gentle enough that I figured if I protected my hand from the barnacles, I might be able to hold on to something. I stuck my fists inside the cloth and tucked the edges into the wrists of my wetsuit. As I drew near, the swells lifted and dropped me before a massive grid of iron that slurped and glistened in the shadows. On the next uplift, I reached out and touched the steel and let my hands slide lightly down the barnacles before drifting away again. On the next approach, I moved over a few feet, rose up, and ran my hands over the steel again. This time, I felt a ledge that I could hold on to. 
I gripped it, feeling the barnacles press sharply into my makeshift gloves. When the swell dropped, I was left hanging there, barely able to hold on. The weight was too much for my gloves, and I clenched my jaw in pain as the barnacles pressed through the cloth and cut into the soggy skin of my palms like glass shards. Then I realized there was no way to climb with my fins on. I waited until the next swell supported me, then let go with one hand and to work my fins off with the other. The barnacles cut deeper into my palms, and the pain was excruciating. I tore the fins off, let them fall into the water, and then grabbed the steel with both hands again. Scraping my feet around, I quickly found a foothold below me. My booties protected my feet from being cut, and I had to keep as much weight on them as I could. Once I was supporting my weight, I grabbed higher and pulled myself up with what felt like the last of my strength and finally I was out of the cold water for the first time in nearly 48 hours but I was exhausted and clinging to a thin lip of steel with shredded hands and trembling knees I couldn't hang on for long and I was certain I didn't have the strength to do it again to my left I saw a steel beam angling up toward one of the columns where it was welded to what appeared to be a low platform about four feet wide I reached out grabbed the beam and fell over onto it feeling more barnacles cut into my hands and through the legs of my wetsuit I crawled up the beam out of the barnacle zone and under a railing I rolled across the steel grate of the platform and I was suddenly lying on my back and free of the cruel salt water as I lay resting, the waves rose and fell beneath me like snapping dogs. I began to study the underside of the rig and saw more of the small platforms ascending the outside of the column and connected with ladder rungs. I wanted more than anything to lie there and rest, but I thought of Shane drifting alone and I forced myself to get up again. I left the cloth on my hands to offer what little protection it could for the deep slices on my palms. Then I started up the ladder into the bowels of this mysteriously abandoned superstructure. The underside of the rig was enormous. As I climbed higher, sky glow reflecting off the water illuminated the steel in pale hues of wavering light. I must have ascended a hundred ladder steps, my footfalls echoing dull and loud under the lonely place. My hands felt sticky with and oily with blood, and I told myself it was a good thing I couldn't see them, since it would only worry me more. They were going to have to work on me no matter how they worked for me, no matter how they felt and what shape they were in. As the last of the platforms beneath the rig, I found myself looking down at the gulf swells a hundred feet below. Overhead was a confusing network of pipes and metal catwalks crisscrossing in the faint light. One of the catwalks led to a staircase that descended to the mooring dock where Shane's rope was tied. I still didn't have any idea how I was going to get him up, but I decided to start off by inspecting the area and seeing what all I had to work with. I made my way over and down to the dock, where I found the rope fastened to a giant cleat. I looked over the water and saw a dark lump against the rope that I assumed was Shane. The way it was drifting perpendicular to the current told me it must be tied off or hung on something beyond the rig. There appeared to be enough slack in it to pull Shane to me, but even if I'd had all my strength and my hands weren't cut, the rope itself was too heavy to lift 20 feet, much less with Shane on it. And then another crushing thought came over me. What if the line tying him to the rope didn't hold? I remembered that I'd doubled the strength of it, but in his condition, Shane wasn't going to be any help, and all of his weight would only rely on two strands of that thin line. But I didn't see any other options. I had to somehow try to pull him up and hold the line. On the day I died, this chapter is Gina. She was born in 1949 and died in 1964. 
just so you get the complete picture. I guess I should start by telling you about the Chicago neighborhood I lived in. Mine didn't have a name like Hyde Park or Roseland or Austin, but it was still a tight-knit place, what my Nona Rosa, who came over on the boat from Italy, called Communita, a community. It was the kind of place where people made Chianti in their basements and grew Roma tomatoes in the tiny yards behind their two flats. The kind of place where my pop, like most of the other men on our block, worked the assembly line over at the Schwinn bicycle plant, while my mom and the other neighbor ladies stayed home to do the dusting and the laundry and the daily shopping. I can still see them, those housewives, dragging their two-wheeled shopping carts along Chicago Avenue, at D'Angelo's Produce that stopped to squeeze the cantaloupes and complained about the price of eggplant. Next door at Mr. Santalori's butcher shop, they'd gossip and haggle over the chops, hollering stuff like, This time, try giving me one that ain't all fat. The kind of place where kids roller skated and played baseball and stayed outside until the streetlights came on, the signal that it was time to go home. And it was the kind of place where, if you earned a certain reputation, it stuck. Take Mrs. Gioletti, for instance. She was 78 and sun-dried as a raisin, but in my neighborhood, she was still a great beauty. Or Mr. Bianchi, who had been sober 10 years but was still labeled a stone-cold drunk. Or me. In my neighborhood, I would forever be known as a liar. But I didn't tell lies, I swear. I told stories. They just came to me, stories about ships at sea or long-ago murders, or how our next-door neighbor, Mr. Giaboni, was really a German spy. They weren't big stories or mean stories. They weren't meant to hurt anyone. They were just stories that with the teeniest, tiniest bits of truth buried in them. Fairy tales, really. Like the time I turned in a report claiming that President Kennedy had come back from the dead to tell me who had really shot him. You've got to admit it made better story than sticking to the boring old facts, didn't it? Or the time I bragged to the kids in my social studies class, I got a record player for Christmas when everyone knew my pop couldn't afford to put that much under the tree. The Beatles sent it to me themselves, I added. There was the sweetest little note from Ringo. It's amazing how one detail can make a story so much better. So, of course, I was telling a story that March morning in 1964, the morning when everything changed. You won't believe who I met coming out of the library last night, I said to my cousin Annette. We were walking to school. Annette, a few steps ahead of me, was trying to act like we weren't really together. Nick DeRosa, that much was true, but then I went on. He offered to carry my books home for me. Isn't that something? Nick DeRosa, homecoming king, senior class president, and Golden Gloves boxing championship offered to carry my books. Annette stopped and turned around. Right, Gina, yeah, I really believe that happened. That's what Nona Rosa calls preso con un grano di sale, or taking it with a grain of salt. People took everything I said with a grain of salt. Why can't you live in this world, Annette demanded. You know no one believes you. No one believes anything you say. Why do you keep making things up? How can I explain that my stories help me escape the dreary sameness of my life? The same old TV shows, the same old questions from my parents, the same old masticali on Thursdays and lasagna on Sundays. How could I tell her that for those moments when I was telling the story, I slipped into a shinier world and lived the life I really wanted? I just shrugged. Come on, she said with an exasperated sigh. We're going to be late. The sidewalks around St. Philomena swelled with kids. Patrol boys wearing those silly orange safety belts tooted their whistles and directed traffic while a couple of priests hung around the flagpole, sipping from coffee mugs and watching for fistfights. 
As we passed, Father Frank waved to us. I was tempted to stop and tell him how my three-legged cat, Claudio, had saved a drowning baby, but the rush of students pushing through the front doors kept me moving. Along with the other ninth graders, I climbed the wide wooden staircase to the fourth floor. In Sister Mary Henry's homeroom, Angela Moretti was showing off her Adipearl necklace again. This one, she was saying to a group of girls gathered around her, was given me on my last birthday, and this one was for my confirmation, and this one... I couldn't help myself. Tapping Angela on the shoulder, I said, I wish I had worn my pearl necklace today. I didn't admit it was plastic. Mine was given to be my Monona Rosa, not for any special occasion, just because. I paused then. I paused then, further inspired, I added, Actually, to be accurate, I should say it was handed down to me since it's been in the family so long. Centuries, really. Ever since one of those old-time popes presented it to us back in the 1700s. Did you know that in Italy my family was royalty? Angela glared at me. Feeling good, I took my seat. That's when I noticed him, standing beside the blackboard. The new boy. Pulito com una nuvua spina. Sorry about my Italian guys. I'm not very good at this. That's what my Nona Rosa would have said, neat as a new pin. Unlike the other boys in class, the new boy wore the white shirt of his school uniform carefully tucked into his blue trousers that were creased as sharp as a razor. His necktie was knotted perfectly and his black leather shoes shone as if he had just rubbed them with Vaseline. He reminded me of one of those kids you'd see on the cover of Catholic Family Magazine. Too good to be true. He looked right at me, and I knew he'd overheard my story. Knew, too, from the way his ice-blue eyes narrowed that he was sizing me up. And then his lips twitched into a smirky sort of smile. Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands for attention. Class, she said, this is Anthony Del Vicio. Anthony comes to us from Our Lady of Mercy School. The room buzzed. We all knew about Our Lady of Mercy. Just last week, the school had mysteriously caught fire in the middle of the night. Even though only the annex had burned, it was enough to close the school and scatter its students all across the diocese. Poor Anthony, I thought it must be hard to lose your school. As he took the empty seat desk across from me, I smiled sympathetically at him. Liar, he said. His voice was soft and a little contemptuous. What? I stammered. But I'm better, he added. At the front of the room, Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands again. Gina, you know my rules about talking during class. Stand up, please. I felt myself go hot, but before I could stand, Anthony rose. He looked at the nun, his eyes wide and full of innocence. I'm afraid this is my fault, sister, he lied. I asked, Gina, is it? I asked Gina to remind me of your name. He managed to bless. I was too embarrassed to ask you myself. I mean, after all the kindness you've shown me, it felt so rude to have forgotten it. He smiled then, a single dimple appearing in his cheek. Please forgive me, sister. It won't happen again. He touched his hands to his chest. I promise. Sister Mary Henry bought every word. Thank you for your honesty, Anthony, she practically cooed. That, Anthony said to me as he sat down, is how it's done. Anthony ignored me for the rest of the day, even though we had lunch and religion class together. I watched him, though. Strange, but considering this was his first day at a new school, he didn't look nervous or confused. Not the teensy-weensiest little bit. In the hall between classes, he whistled at Angela Moretti, and in the cafeteria, he went right up to Nick DeRosa and thumped him on the back like they were old friends. He even shook Father Frank's hand the way my pop always did on Sundays after Mass, two-handed and full of gusto. What kind of teenager did that? He's smooth, I thought, smooth as the satin trim on my confirmation dress. After school, I headed across the street to Mrs. Kostelnik's store for my daily sugar fix. 
Acne be darned. As I stood in front of the candy counter, deciding whether to blow my entire ten cents on a Hershey bar or just buy a nickel's worth of atomic fireballs, Anthony settled up next to me. I heard a joke about you today, he said. You want to hear it? Not especially, I said. He ignored me. How can you tell when Gina Sparsino is lying? He paused before delivering the punch. Her lips are moving, he laughed. I studied a box of milk duds. What, are you upset, he asked. I refused to answer. Snapping up the Hershey's bar and the milk duds, I stomped over to the cash register. Beside it sat a dish full of matchbooks for the grown-ups who came in to buy cigarettes. Anthony strolled over to the dish and nonchalantly pocketed a couple of books. I saw that, I said. Saw what? You took some matches. They're right there in your jacket pocket. So what? They're free, aren't they? But they're not for kids. I could tell Mrs. Kostelnik. Will she believe you? I hesitated. Anthony stepped close, so close I could feel his breath on my cheek. Don't you like the little ploof sound a match makes when it's lit, he asked. His expression turned all intense. Don't you like that whiff of sulfur? I looked away, trying to hide how frightened I suddenly felt. At that moment, Mrs. Kostelnik hollered across the shop. Can I help you, kids? I got what I came for, answered Anthony, and he pushed out the door and was gone. From then on, I made a point of avoiding Anthony. I refused to even glance in his direction during homeroom, much less talk to him. I quit buying candy at Mrs. Kostelnik's and instead walked home with Annette and her friends every day. I even started sitting with them at lunch just in case Anthony got the bright idea to share sandwiches or something. Annette wasn't exactly thrilled by my presence. Can't you find your own friends, she complained. But she didn't tell me to get lost. She couldn't. I was family. As the days passed without any more Anthony incidents, I began to relax. Just like everyone else in my class, he had forgotten all about me. But one night just before supper, there was a knock at our front door. I answered to find him standing there. What are you doing here, I asked. I'm collecting for my paper route, he answered smoothly. You don't have a paper route. He lifted his eyebrows. How would you know? You never talked to me. And I'm not starting now. I tried to shut the door, but he stuck out his foot, stopping me. Wait, he said, his voice dead calm. I have to ask you a question. Does my jacket smell like smoke? As I shook my head, confused. Anthony pointed across the street. There's a fire over there. You better call the fire department. I looked. Sure enough, black smoke billowed out of the Santushi's garage. Fire, I shrieked, dashing into the living room. Ma, call the fire department. Ma came to the door, wiping her hands on a dish rag and grumbling. Honestly, Gina, if this is another one of your stories. Her voice trailed off at the sight of the flames now licking their way through the garage's tar paper roof. With a squeak, she dropped the rag and made a dash for the kitchen and the telephone. I turned back, but Anthony was gone. A cold, hard fear was growing in the pit of my stomach, a suspicion turning into knowledge too awful to put into words. Could Anthony have started that fire? It wasn't long before the entire neighborhood had left their suppers on the table to watch the firemen battle the flames. In the chaos, I saw Annette and Nick and Anthony. He stood mesmerized, the red and blue fire trucks' lights flashing eerily across his face. It gave me a creepy feeling the way his eyes were so wide and glassy. He looked like a cat staring at a bird. The next afternoon during religion class, Sister Mary Eunice asked us to make a list of our sins. A written list, she said. Binders around the room snapped open as we reached for the notebook paper. The purpose of this exercise is to examine your conscience so you will be prepared for your next confession, she continued. Please be honest and earnest. 
I was just wondering if I could spruce up my list to make a better story by throwing in a plane crash or maybe a movie star when Anthony squeezed into the seat beside me. I'm here to confess my sins, he whispered. Glancing around to make sure no one else was looking, he dropped a sheet of paper into my open binder. In his recognizable block handwriting were written three little words. I did it. Underneath was a drawing of Our Lady of Mercy School. It was being eaten alive by flames. I thought I was actually going to scream. I put my fist in my mouth as if to shove it back and then just coughed. Dry mouthed, I reached for his paper. But Anthony snatched it back. No, 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 he said, wiggling his finger. This is between me and God. And then he folded his confession and stuck it between the pages of his Bible. For the rest of the period, I sat frozen beside him, sick with the knowledge of what he had done. My heart and stomach crammed up into my throat. I had to tell someone. I had to tell Father Frank. When the bell rang, I bolted for the door. What's your hurry, Gina? Anthony called after me, taunting me. Stifling a cry, I fled. The hallway echoed with the slam of slamming lockers and kids shouting, Call you later or see you at baseball practice. I pushed my way toward the staircase. Annette and her friends were there waiting for me. I shoved past them. What's with you? Annette hollered after me. But I kept going, fighting my way down the crowded stairs and out the front door. Yes, thank God. Father Frank was there in his usual spot by the flagpole. Father, I cried, tears of relief filling my eyes. Father Frank. What is it, he asked. Gina, has something happened? Anthony Del Vincio, I did it, I blurted as a river of happy laughing students flowed around us. He said, fire to our lady of mercy. Then I launched into my story. But I hadn't gotten any farther than the part about Mrs. Kostelnik's matchbooks when Father Frank stopped me. What is our Lord's ninth commandment, Gina, he asked. What did that have to do with Anthony? I fumbled for a moment before answering, um, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That is correct, said Father Frank. And do you know what that commandment means, Gina? It means it is a mortal, it is a mortal sin to tell lies. Sorry, I lost my page, guys. These untruths you are spreading about Anthony will result in your damnation unless you repent. But I'm not lying. Storytelling is lying. It's the same thing, replied Father Frank. He took my hands in his. You must ask God's forgiveness, Gina. You must confess. But, but... Go home now, he said. Go home and reflect on your sin. I took a few stumbling steps, and then I stopped and pressed my palms to my flushed cheeks. Why wouldn't he believe me? Didn't he know I would never, ever make up a story about something this serious? Panic fluttered in my chest. What should I do? What should I do? Anthony was waiting for me at the corner. Go away. I pushed past him and hurried down the sidewalk. He hurried after me. Whirling, I cried. Why won't you leave me alone? Because, he replied calmly, because why? Because you're the only person I can tell without getting in trouble, he said. I understood then. He needed an audience, someone to witness his deeds. If no one knew, then it was almost as if they had never happened. Stay away from me, I shouted, or I'll call the police. I ran, sobbing all the way home. Gina, is that you? Ma called as I burst through the front door and flung myself into my bedroom. Gina, leave me alone, I called back. I'm fine. Of course I wasn't, but if I told her what it was happening, she probably wouldn't believe me either. I dropped onto the edge of my bed, gulping big mouthfuls of air. Hugging myself tightly, I rocked back and forth, back and forth, until finally, slowly, the panic left. Still, a sense of dread remained. Anthony wasn't in homeroom the next morning. Looking at the empty seat across from me, I should have felt relief, but I didn't. Instead, I felt itchy and on edge. Halfway through... 
a period he appeared making a big show of the Bible in his hand. Please excuse my tardiness, sister, he said as he slid into his chair, his face all false innocence. I was so busy memorizing my New Testament verses that I lost all track of time. Sister Mary Henry nodded understandingly. In her world, Anthony Delvicio could do no wrong. I watched him out of the corner of my eye as he smiled at some secret thought. The dimple in his cheek deepened. Minutes later, the classroom door began to clatter. Curious, Tommy DeLuca opened the door. Hey, there's smoke in the hallway, he hollered, just as a cloud of black smoke swirled into the classroom. Sister Mary Henry hurried over to where Tommy stood. Quickly, she slammed the door, but more smoke began seeping into the transom. Everyone looked nervously toward the teacher. Everyone, that is, but me. I slowly turned to Anthony, my eyes wide with horror. There was a moment, and then he winked. I leaped to my feet, the sudden movement knocking over my desk just as the fire alarm went off. Kids were scrambling now, bolting toward the classroom door. Years of fire drill practice instantly forgotten as the smoke of the room grew thicker and blacker. Get on your hands and knees, shouted Sister Mary Henry. Crawl out through the door, one after another. Everyone did as they were told. One by one, they disappeared into the churning darkness of the hallway. I raced to join them, but Anthony grabbed me. His strong arm held me back. Let me go, I twisted and struggled. Enjoy it, he shouted above the sounds of the fire. Enjoy it for one more minute. The room was growing hotter every second. The paint on the walls beginning to change from white to brown. Sister, I called weakly, choking and coughing. Then the big globe lights that hung from the ceiling exploded, sending a rain of glass crashing to the floor. Anthony let go of my arm and I fell to my knees. His Bible. In the chaos, it had been knocked to the floor. Now I snatched it up, held it over my head as if I could provide some sort of heavenly protection against the fire. But within seconds, its golden-edged pages began smoldering. They curled, became, became curling wisps that drifted to the floor. I put out my hand. The pages fell like snow-white flakes into my palm. So I did. So did a folded piece of paper, Anthony's confession. My fingers closed around it just as he grabbed my arm again, this time with less strength. He was making rasping, hacking sounds as he pulled me toward the windows. He wrestled one open and we hung our heads out, gulping the cold, fresh air. Below us on the asphalt, we could see Sister Mary Henry and our classmates. We could see the other students, too. Everyone had escaped, except us. I looked at Anthony. There was a feverish light in his eyes, a strange smile on his lips. And even in the room's oven-like heat, I shivered. Suddenly, with a bright orange flash and a loud boom, the fire exploded. It crashed in at the door and burst through the walls, and then everything was on fire. Desks, tables, books. My hair began to smoke. I could feel my nylons melting to my legs. Climb up here, shouted Anthony. He half dragged me out onto the wide window ledge. For a moment, we both perched there, looking down at the terrified faces below. Anthony reached over and took my clenched hand in his. This is fun, isn't it, he said, his voice raw. That's when the windows blew out, knocking us off the sill. I don't know how long I lay there on the blacktop unconscious. When I finally opened my eyes, I was looking up at Sister Mary Henry, my head resting in her lap. Father Frank bent over me, anointing my forehead with oil. Yea, I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I were feeling, fear no evil. Evil. I moved my blistered lips, forced words up from my parched throat. Anthony, he's alive, soothed Sister Mary Henry. Father Frank leaned in clo- even closer. Why, Gina? He asked, his kind eyes probing mine. Why did you do it? Anthony. A look of sadness washed over Father Frank's face. Oh, Gina, he sighed. Slowly, my blackened fingers relaxed, revealing a folded paper, its edges burned, the paper that had fallen from Anthony's Bible. Sister Mary, Mary Henry took the paper and opened it. 
I did it, she read aloud. She gasped, and I knew she recognized Anthony's handwriting. She turned to Father Frank and whispered something in his ear. Their eyes met and then slowly grew wide with understanding, just as mine closed for the last time. Gina fell silent. And slowly, Mike returned to himself. Now, remember, Mike is the kid that found in our first chapter, The Girl on the Road. He's the one that's in the um, graveyard of young adults who have died. And so they're each telling their story to him. And slowly, Mike returned to himself, the hazy edges of the ghost story rolling back like fog to reveal the present. Once again, he could see the gravestones bright in the moonlight, could feel the saddle shoes, cold and wet and lumpy, beneath him. Nothing had changed except for one thing. While Gina had told her story, the other ghosts had gathered around to listen, setting the, settling themselves onto a nearby gravestone or sitting cross-legged in the grass. They were close enough now for Mike to make out their expressions, some sad, others hopeful, still others pitying or sympathetic or, in the case of the boy stomping toward him, angry. Mike jerked back as the boy raised a fist, but the ghost whirled on Gina. So that's it? That's the end? What do you mean, she asked. You should have gotten even with that Anthony schmuck. You should have haunted him to his dying day. You know it doesn't work that way, said Gina. Besides, I'm sure it all came right in the end. Came right? You're the only person can make it come right. If there's one thing I learned from my 16 lousy years on earth, it's you only got yourself and nobody going to help. And I'll tell you something else. If it had been me, I'd have haunted that slob until he was just a shivering little bunny rabbit. Yeah, I'd have reduced him to a quaking mass of tapioca pudding. I'd have gotten my revenge. The boy turned his furious face toward Mike. Revenge, he said in a low voice. That's my story. How Johnny Novani got his revenge and, he paused a second before continuing, how revenge got him. So when we read next time, it'll be the chapter is Johnny. And he was born in 1920 and died in 1936. On the day I died, this chapter is Gina. She was born in 1949 and died in 1964. Just so you get the complete picture, I guess I should start by telling you about the Chicago neighborhood I lived in. Mine didn't have a name like Hyde Park or Rosalind or Austin, but it was still a tight-knit place, what my Nona Rosa, who came over on the boat from Italy, called Communita, a community. It was the kind of place where people made Chianti in their basements and grew Roma tomatoes in the tiny yards behind their two flats. The kind of place where my pop, like most of the other men on our block, worked the assembly line over at the Schwinn bicycle plant, while my mom and the other neighbor ladies stayed home to do the dusting and the laundry and the daily shopping. I can still see them, those housewives, dragging their two-wheeled shopping carts along Chicago Avenue, at D'Angelo's Produce, they'd stop to squeeze the cantaloupes and complain about the price of eggplant. Next door at Mr. Santalori's butcher shop, they'd gossip and haggle over the chops, hollering stuff like, This time, try giving me one that ain't all fat. The kind of place where kids roller skated and played baseball and stayed outside until the streetlights came on, the signal that it was time to go home. And it was the kind of place where, if you earned a certain reputation, it stuck. Take Mrs. Gioletti, for instance. She was 78 and sun-dried as a raisin, but in my neighborhood, she was still a great beauty. Or Mr. Bianchi, who had been sober 10 years, but was still labeled a stone-cold drunk. Or me. In my neighborhood, I would forever be known as a liar. But I didn't tell lies, I swear. I told stories. They just came to me, stories about ships at sea or long-ago murders, or how our next-door neighbor, Mr. Giaboni, was really a German spy. 
They weren't big stories or mean stories. They weren't meant to hurt anyone. They were just stories that with the teeniest, tiniest bits of truth buried in them. Fairy tales, really. Like the time I turned in a report claiming that President Kennedy had come back from the dead to tell me who had really shot him. You've got to admit it made better story than sticking to the boring old facts, didn't it? Or the time I bragged to the kids in my social studies class, I got a record player for Christmas when everyone knew my pop couldn't afford to put that much under the tree. The Beatles sent it to me themselves, I added. There was the sweetest little note from Ringo. It's amazing how one detail can make a story so much better. So, of course, I was telling a story that March morning in 1964, the morning when everything changed. You won't believe who I met coming out of the library last night, I said to my cousin Annette. We were walking to school. Annette, a few steps ahead of me, was trying to act like we weren't really together. Nick DeRosa, that much was true, but then I went on. He offered to carry my books home for me. Isn't that something? Nick DeRosa, homecoming king, senior class president, and Golden Gloves boxing championship offered to carry my books. Annette stopped and turned around. Right, Gina, yeah, I really believe that happened. That's what Nona Rosa calls preso con un grano di sale, or taking it with a grain of salt. People took everything I said with a grain of salt. Why can't you live in this world, Annette demanded. You know no one believes you. No one believes anything you say. Why do you keep making things up? How can I explain that my stories help me escape the dreary sameness of my life? The same old TV shows, the same old questions from my parents... The same old Mastacali on Thursdays and lasagna on Sundays. How could I tell her that for those moments when I was telling the story, I slipped into a shinier world and lived the life I really wanted? I just shrugged. Come on, she said with an exasperated sigh. We're going to be late. The sidewalks around St. Philomena swelled with kids. Patrol boys wearing those silly orange safety belts tooted their whistles and directed traffic while a couple of priests hung around the flagpole sipping from coffee mugs and watching for fistfights. As we passed, Father Frank waved to us. I was tempted to stop and tell him how my three-legged cat, Claudio, had saved a drowning baby, but the rush of students pushing through the front doors kept me moving. Along with the other ninth graders, I climbed the wide wooden staircase to the fourth floor. In Sister Mary Henry's homeroom, Angela Moretti was showing off her Adipearl necklace again. This one, she was saying to a group of girls gathered around her, was given me on my last birthday, and this one was for my confirmation, and this one... I couldn't help myself. Tapping Angela on the shoulder, I said, I wish I had worn my pearl necklace today. I didn't admit it was plastic. Mine was given to be my Monona Rosa, not for any special occasion, just because. I paused then. I paused then. Further inspired, I added, Actually, to be accurate, I should say it was handed down to me since it's been in the family so long. Centuries, really. Ever since one of those old-time popes presented it to us back in the 1700s. Did you know that in Italy my family was royalty? Angela glared at me. Feeling good, I took my seat. That's when I noticed him, standing beside the blackboard. The new boy. Pulito com una nuvua spina. Sorry about my Italian guys. I'm not very good at this. That's what my Nona Rosa would have said, neat as a new pin. Unlike the other boys in class, the new boy wore the white shirt of his school uniform carefully tucked into his blue trousers that were creased as sharp as a razor. His necktie was knotted perfectly and his black leather shoes shone as if he had just rubbed them with Vaseline. He reminded me of one of those kids you'd see on the cover of Catholic Family Magazine. Too good to be true. He looked right at me, and I knew he'd overheard my story. Knew, too, from the way his ice-blue eyes narrowed that he was sizing me up. And then his lips twitched into a smirky sort of smile. 
Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands for attention. Class, she said, this is Anthony Delvicio. Anthony comes to us from Our Lady of Mercy School. The room buzzed. We all knew about Our Lady of Mercy. Just last week, the school had mysteriously caught fire in the middle of the night. Even though only the annex had burned, it was enough to close the school and scatter its students all across the diocese. Poor Anthony, I thought it must be hard to lose your school. As he took the empty seat desk across from me, I smiled sympathetically at him. Liar, he said. His voice was soft and a little contemptuous. What? I stammered. But I'm better, he added. At the front of the room, Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands again. Gina, you know my rules about talking during class. Stand up, please. I felt myself go hot, but before I could stand, Anthony rose. He looked at the nun, his eyes wide and full of innocence. I'm afraid this is my fault, sister, he lied. I asked, Gina, is it? I asked Gina to remind me of your name. He managed to bless. I was too embarrassed to ask you myself. I mean, after all the kindness you've shown me, it felt so rude to have forgotten it. He smiled then, a single dimple appearing in his cheek. Please forgive me, sister. It won't happen again. He touched his hands to his chest. I promise. Sister Mary Henry bought every word. Thank you for your honesty, Anthony, she practically cooed. That, Anthony said to me as he sat down, is how it's done. Anthony ignored me for the rest of the day, even though we had lunch and religion class together. I watched him, though. Strange, but considering this was his first day at a new school, he didn't look nervous or confused. Not the teensy-weensiest little bit. In the hall between classes, he whistled at Angela Moretti, and in the cafeteria, he went right up to Nick DeRosa and thumped him on the back like they were old friends. He even shook Father Frank's hand the way my pop always did on Sundays after Mass, two-handed and full of gusto. What kind of teenager did that? He's smooth, I thought, smooth as the satin trim on my confirmation dress. After school, I headed across the street to Mrs. Kostelnik's store for my daily sugar fix. Acne be darned. As I stood in front of the candy counter, deciding whether to blow my entire ten cents on a Hershey bar or just buy a nickel's worth of atomic fireballs, Anthony settled up next to me. I heard a joke about you today, he said. You want to hear it? Not especially, I said. He ignored me. How can you tell when Gina Sparsino is lying? He paused before delivering the punch. Her lips are moving, he laughed. I studied a box of milk duds. What, are you upset, he asked. I refused to answer. Snapping up the Hershey's bar and the milk duds, I stomped over to the cash register. Beside it sat a dish full of matchbooks for the grown-ups who came in to buy cigarettes. Anthony strolled over to the dish and nonchalantly pocketed a couple of books. I saw that, I said. Saw what? You took some matches. They're right there in your jacket pocket. So what? They're free, aren't they? But they're not for kids. I could tell Mrs. Kostelnik. Will she believe you? I hesitated. Anthony stepped close, so close I could feel his breath on my cheek. Don't you like the little ploof sound a match makes when it's lit, he asked. His expression turned all intense. Don't you like that whiff of sulfur? I looked away, trying to hide how frightened I suddenly felt. At that moment, Mrs. Kostelnik hollered across the shop. Can I help you, kids? I got what I came for, answered Anthony, and he pushed out the door and was gone. From then on, I made a point of avoiding Anthony. I refused to even glance in his direction during homeroom, much less talk to him. I quit buying candy at Mrs. Kostelnik's and instead walked home with Annette and her friends every day. I even started sitting with them at lunch just in case Anthony got the bright idea to share sandwiches or something. Annette wasn't exactly thrilled by my presence. Can't you find your own friends, she complained. But she didn't tell me to get lost. She couldn't. I was family. 
As the days passed without any more Anthony incidents, I began to relax. Just like everyone else in my class, he had forgotten all about me. But one night just before supper, there was a knock at our front door. I answered to find him standing there. What are you doing here, I asked. I'm collecting for my paper route, he answered smoothly. You don't have a paper route. He lifted his eyebrows. How would you know? You never talked to me. And I'm not starting now. I tried to shut the door, but he stuck out his foot, stopping me. Wait, he said, his voice dead calm. I have to ask you a question. Does my jacket smell like smoke? As I shook my head, confused. Anthony pointed across the street. There's a fire over there. You better call the fire department. I looked. Sure enough, black smoke billowed out of the Santushi's garage. Fire, I shrieked, dashing into the living room. Ma, call the fire department. Ma came to the door, wiping her hands on a dish rag and grumbling. Honestly, Gina, if this is another one of your stories. Her voice trailed off at the sight of the flames now licking their way through the garage's tar paper roof. With a squeak, she dropped the rag and made a dash for the kitchen and the telephone. I turned back, but Anthony was gone. A cold, hard fear was growing in the pit of my stomach, a suspicion turning into knowledge too awful to put into words. Could Anthony have started that fire? It wasn't long before the entire neighborhood had left their suppers on the table to watch the firemen battle the flames. In the chaos, I saw Annette and Nick and Anthony. He stood mesmerized, the red and blue fire trucks' lights flashing eerily across his face. It gave me a creepy feeling the way his eyes were so wide and glassy. He looked like a cat staring at a bird. The next afternoon during religion class, Sister Mary Eunice asked us to make a list of our sins. A written list, she said. Binders around the room snapped open as we reached for the notebook paper. The purpose of this exercise is to examine your conscience so you will be prepared for your next confession, she continued. Please be honest and earnest. I was just wondering if I could spruce up my list to make a better story by throwing in a plane crash or maybe a movie star when Anthony squeezed into the seat beside me. I'm here to confess my sins, he whispered. Glancing around to make sure no one else was looking, he dropped a sheet of paper into my open binder. In his recognizable block handwriting were written three little words. I did it. Underneath was a drawing of Our Lady of Mercy School. It was being eaten alive by flames. I thought I was actually going to scream. I put my fist in my mouth as if to shove it back and then just coughed. Dry mouth, I reached for his paper. But Anthony snatched it back. No, 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 he said, wiggling his finger. This is between me and God. And then he folded his confession and stuck it between the pages of his Bible. For the rest of the period, I sat frozen beside him, sick with the knowledge of what he had done. My heart and stomach crammed up into my throat. I had to tell someone. I had to tell Father Frank. When the bell rang, I bolted for the door. What's your hurry, Gina? Anthony called after me, taunting me. Stifling a cry, I fled. The hallway echoed with the slam of slamming lockers and kids shouting, Call you later, or see you at baseball practice. I pushed my way toward the staircase. Annette and her friends were there waiting for me. I shoved past them. What's with you? Annette hollered after me. But I kept going, fighting my way down the crowded stairs and out the front door. Yes, thank God. Father Frank was there in his usual spot by the flagpole. Father, I cried, tears of relief filling my eyes. Father Frank. What is it, he asked. Gina, has something happened? Anthony Del Vincio, I did it, I blurted as a river of happy laughing students flowed around us. He said fire to Our Lady of Mercy. Then I launched into my story. But I hadn't gotten any farther than the part about Mrs. Kostelnik's matchbooks when Father Frank stopped me. What is our Lord's ninth commandment, Gina, he asked. 
What did that have to do with Anthony? I fumbled for a moment before answering, Um, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That is correct, said Father Frank. And do you know what that commandment means, Sheena? It means it is a mortal, it is a mortal sin to tell lies. Sorry, I lost my page, guys. These untruths you are spreading about Anthony will result in your damnation unless you repent. But I'm not lying. Storytelling is lying. It's the same thing, replied Father Frank. He took my hands in his. You must ask God's forgiveness, Gina. You must confess. But, but, go home now, he said. Go home and reflect on your sin. I took a few stumbling steps, and then I stopped and pressed my palms to my flushed cheeks. Why wouldn't he believe me? Didn't he know I would never, ever make up a story about something this serious? Panic fluttered in my chest. What should I do? What should I do? Anthony was waiting for me at the corner. Go away. I pushed past him and hurried down the sidewalk. He hurried after me. Whirling, I cried, Why won't you leave me alone? Because, he replied calmly, Because why? Because you're the only person I can tell without getting in trouble, he said. I understood then. He needed an audience, someone to witness his deeds. If no one knew, then it was almost as if they had never happened. Stay away from me, I shouted, or I'll call the police. I ran, sobbing all the way home. Gina, is that you? Ma called as I burst through the front door and flung myself into my bedroom. Gina, leave me alone, I called back. I'm fine. Of course I wasn't, but if I told her what was happening, she probably wouldn't believe me either. I dropped onto the edge of my bed, gulping big mouthfuls of air. Hugging myself tightly, I rocked back and forth, back and forth, until finally, slowly, the panic left. Still, a sense of dread remained. Anthony wasn't in homeroom the next morning. Looking at the empty seat across from me, I should have felt relief, but I didn't. Instead, I felt itchy and on edge. Halfway through the period, he appeared, making a big show of the Bible in his hand. Please excuse my tardiness, sister, he said as he slid into his chair, his face all false innocence. I was so busy memorizing my New Testament verses that I lost all track of time. Sister Mary Henry nodded understandingly. In her world, Anthony Delvicio could do no wrong. I watched him out of the corner of my eye as he smiled at some secret thought. The dimple in his cheek deepened. Minutes later, the classroom door began to clatter. Curious, Tommy DeLuca opened the door. Hey, there's smoke in the hallway, he hollered, just as a cloud of black smoke swirled into the classroom. Sister Mary Henry hurried over to where Tommy stood. Quickly, she slammed the door, but more smoke began seeping into the transom. Everyone looked nervously toward the teacher. Everyone, that is, but me. I slowly turned to Anthony, my eyes wide with horror. There was a moment, and then he winked. I leaped to my feet, the sudden movement knocking over my desk just as the fire alarm went off. Kids were scrambling now, bolting toward the classroom door. Years of fire drill practice instantly forgotten as the smoke of the room grew thicker and blacker. Get on your hands and knees, shouted Sister Mary Henry. Crawl out through the door, one after another. Everyone did as they were told. One by one, they disappeared into the churning darkness of the hallway. I raced to join them, but Anthony grabbed me. His strong arm held me back. Let me go, I twisted and struggled. Enjoy it, he shouted above the sounds of the fire. Enjoy it for one more minute. The room was growing hotter every second. The paint on the walls beginning to change from white to brown. Sister, I called weakly, choking and coughing. Then the big globe lights that hung from the ceiling exploded, sending a rain of glass crashing to the floor. Anthony let go of my arm and I fell to my knees. His Bible. In the chaos, it had been knocked to the floor. 
Now I snatched it up, held it over my head as if I could provide some sort of heavenly protection against the fire. But within seconds, its golden-edged pages began smoldering. They curled, became, became curling wisps that drifted to the floor. I put out my hand. The pages fell like snow-white flakes into my palm. So I did. So did a folded piece of paper. Anthony's confession. My fingers closed around it just as he grabbed my arm again, this time with less strength. He was making rasping, hacking sounds as he pulled me toward the windows. He wrestled one open and we hung our heads out, gulping the cold, fresh air. Below us on the asphalt, we could see Sister Mary Henry and our classmates. We could see the other students, too. Everyone had escaped, except us. I looked at Anthony. There was a feverish light in his eyes, a strange smile on his lips. And even in the room's oven-like heat, I shivered. Suddenly, with a bright orange flash and a loud boom, the fire exploded. It crashed in at the door and burst through the walls, and then everything was on fire. Desks, tables, books. My hair began to smoke. I could feel my nylons melting to my legs. Climb up here, shouted Anthony. He half dragged me out onto the wide window ledge. For a moment, we both perched there, looking down at the terrified faces below. Anthony reached over and took my clenched hand in his. This is fun, isn't it, he said, his voice raw. That's when the windows blew out, knocking us off the sill. I don't know how long I lay there on the blacktop unconscious. When I finally opened my eyes, I was looking up at Sister Mary Henry, my head resting in her lap. Father Frank bent over me, anointing my forehead with oil. Yea, I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I will feel, fear no evil. Evil. I moved my blistered lips, forced words up from my parched throat. Anthony, he's alive, soothed Sister Mary Henry. Father Frank leaned in clo even closer. Why, Gina? He asked, his kind eyes probing mine. Why did you do it? Anthony. A look of sadness washed over Father Frank's face. Oh, Gina, he sighed. Slowly, my blackened fingers relaxed, revealing a folded paper, its edges burned, the paper that had fallen from Anthony's Bible. Sister Mary, Mary Henry took the paper and opened it. I did it, she read aloud. She gasped, and I knew she recognized Anthony's handwriting. She turned to Father Frank and whispered something in his ear. Their eyes met and then slowly grew wide with understanding, just as mine closed for the last time. Gina fell silent. And slowly, Mike returned to himself. Now, remember, Mike is the kid that found in our first chapter, The Girl on the Road. He's the one that's in the um, graveyard of young adults who have died. And so they're each telling their story to him. And slowly, Mike returned to himself, the hazy edges of the ghost story rolling back like fog to reveal the present. Once again, he could see the gravestones bright in the moonlight, could feel the saddle shoes, cold and wet and lumpy, beneath him. Nothing had changed except for one thing. While Gina had told her story, the other ghosts had gathered around to listen, setting the, settling themselves onto a nearby gravestone or sitting cross-legged in the grass. They were close enough now for Mike to make out their expressions. Some sad, others hopeful, still others pitying or sympathetic or, in the case of the boy stomping toward him, angry. Mike jerked back as the boy raised a fist, but the ghost whirled on Gina. So that's it? That's the end? What do you mean, she asked. You should have gotten even with that Anthony schmuck. You should have haunted him to his dying day. You know it doesn't work that way, said Gina. Besides, I'm sure it all came right in the end. Came right? You're the only person can make it come right. If there's one thing I learned from my 16 lousy years on earth, it's you only got yourself and nobody going to help. And I'll tell you something else. If it had been me, I'd have haunted that slob until he was just a shivering little bunny rabbit. Yeah, I'd have reduced him to a quaking mass of tapioca pudding. I'd have gotten my revenge. The boy turned his furious face toward Mike. 
Revenge, he said in a low voice. That's my story. How Johnny Novani got his revenge and, he paused a second before continuing, how revenge got him. So when we read next time, it'll be the chapter's Johnny, and he was born in 1920 and died in 1936. On the day I died, this chapter is Gina. She was born in 1949 and died in 1964. Just so you get the complete picture, I guess I should start by telling you about the Chicago neighborhood I lived in. Mine didn't have a name like Hyde Park or Rosalind or Austin, but it was still a tight-knit place, what my Nona Rosa, who came over on the boat from Italy, called Communita, a community. It was the kind of place where people made Chianti in their basements and grew Roma tomatoes in the tiny yards behind their two flats. The kind of place where my pop, like most of the other men on our block, worked the assembly line over at the Schwinn bicycle plant, while my mom and the other neighbor ladies stayed home to do the dusting and the laundry and the daily shopping. I can still see them, those housewives, dragging their two-wheeled shopping carts along Chicago Avenue, at D'Angelo's Produce that stopped to squeeze the cantaloupes and complained about the price of eggplant. Next door at Mr. Santalori's butcher shop, they'd gossip and haggle over the chops, hollering stuff like, This time, try giving me one that ain't all fat. The kind of place where kids roller skated and played baseball and stayed outside until the streetlights came on, the signal that it was time to go home. And it was the kind of place where, if you earned a certain reputation, it stuck. Take Mrs. Gioletti, for instance. She was 78 and sun-dried as a raisin, but in my neighborhood, she was still a great beauty. Or Mr. Bianchi, who had been sober 10 years, but was still labeled a stone-cold drunk. Or me. In my neighborhood, I would forever be known as a liar. But I didn't tell lies, I swear. I told stories. They just came to me, stories about ships at sea or long-ago murders, or how our next-door neighbor, Mr. Giaboni, was really a German spy. They weren't big stories or mean stories. They weren't meant to hurt anyone. They were just stories that with the teeniest, tiniest bits of truth buried in them. Fairy tales, really. Like the time I turned in a report claiming that President Kennedy had come back from the dead to tell me who had really shot him. You've got to admit it made better story than sticking to the boring old facts, didn't it? Or the time I bragged to the kids in my social studies class, I got a record player for Christmas when everyone knew my pop couldn't afford to put that much under the tree. The Beatles sent it to me themselves, I added. There was the sweetest little note from Ringo. It's amazing how one detail can make a story so much better. So, of course, I was telling a story that March morning in 1964, the morning when everything changed. You won't believe who I met coming out of the library last night, I said to my cousin Annette. We were walking to school. Annette, a few steps ahead of me, was trying to act like we weren't really together. Nick DeRosa. That much was true, but then I went on. He offered to carry my books home for me. Isn't that something? Nick DeRosa, homecoming king, senior class president, and Golden Gloves boxing championship offered to carry my books. Annette stopped and turned around. Right, Gina, yeah, I really believe that happened. That's what Nona Rosa calls preso con un grano di sale, or taking it with a grain of salt. People took everything I said with a grain of salt. Why can't you live in this world, Annette demanded. You know no one believes you. No one believes anything you say. Why do you keep making things up? How can I explain that my stories help me escape the dreary sameness of my life? The same old TV shows, the same old questions from my parents, the same old masticali on Thursdays and lasagna on Sundays. How could I tell her that for those moments when I was telling the story, I slipped into a shinier world and lived the life I really wanted? 
I just shrugged. Come on, she said with an exasperated sigh. We're going to be late. The sidewalks around St. Philomena swelled with kids. Patrol boys wearing those silly orange safety belts tooted their whistles and directed traffic while a couple of priests hung around the flagpole, sipping from coffee mugs and watching for fistfights. As we passed, Father Frank waved to us. I was tempted to stop and tell him how my three-legged cat, Claudio, had saved a drowning baby, but the rush of students pushing through the front doors kept me moving. Along with the other ninth graders, I climbed the wide wooden staircase to the fourth floor. In Sister Mary Henry's homeroom, Angela Moretti was showing off her Adipearl necklace again. This one, she was saying to a group of girls gathered around her, was given me on my last birthday, and this one was for my confirmation, and this one... I couldn't help myself. Tapping Angela on the shoulder, I said, I wish I had worn my pearl necklace today. I didn't admit it was plastic. Mine was given to be my Monona Rosa, not for any special occasion, just because. I paused then. I paused then. Further inspired, I added, Actually, to be accurate, I should say it was handed down to me since it's been in the family so long. Centuries, really. Ever since one of those old-time popes presented it to us back in the 1700s. Did you know that in Italy my family was royalty? Angela glared at me. Feeling good, I took my seat. That's when I noticed him, standing beside the blackboard. The new boy. Pulito com una nuvua spina. Sorry about my Italian guys. I'm not very good at this. That's what my Nona Rosa would have said, neat as a new pin. Unlike the other boys in class, the new boy wore the white shirt of his school uniform carefully tucked into his blue trousers that were creased as sharp as a razor. His necktie was knotted perfectly and his black leather shoes shone as if he had just rubbed them with Vaseline. He reminded me of one of those kids you'd see on the cover of Catholic Family Magazine. Too good to be true. He looked right at me, and I knew he'd overheard my story. Knew, too, from the way his ice-blue eyes narrowed that he was sizing me up. And then his lips twitched into a smirky sort of smile. Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands for attention. Class, she said, this is Anthony Del Vicio. Anthony comes to us from Our Lady of Mercy School. The room buzzed. We all knew about Our Lady of Mercy. Just last week, the school had mysteriously caught fire in the middle of the night. Even though only the annex had burned, it was enough to close the school and scatter its students all across the diocese. Poor Anthony, I thought it must be hard to lose your school. As he took the empty seat desk across from me, I smiled sympathetically at him. Liar, he said. His voice was soft and a little contemptuous. What? I stammered. But I'm better, he added. At the front of the room, Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands again. Gina, you know my rules about talking during class. Stand up, please. I felt myself go hot, but before I could stand, Anthony rose. He looked at the nun, his eyes wide and full of innocence. I'm afraid this is my fault, sister, he lied. I asked, Gina, is it? I asked Gina to remind me of your name. He managed to bless. I was too embarrassed to ask you myself. I mean, after all the kindness you've shown me, it felt so rude to have forgotten it. He smiled then, a single dimple appearing in his cheek. Please forgive me, sister. It won't happen again. He touched his hands to his chest. I promise. Sister Mary Henry bought every word. Thank you for your honesty, Anthony, she practically cooed. That, Anthony said to me as he sat down, is how it's done. Anthony ignored me for the rest of the day, even though we had lunch and religion class together. I watched him, though. Strange, but considering this was his first day at a new school, he didn't look nervous or confused. Not the teensy-weensiest little bit. 
In the hall between classes, he whistled at Angela Moretti, and in the cafeteria, he went right up to Nick DeRosa and thumped him on the back like they were old friends. He even shook Father Frank's hand the way my pop always did on Sundays after Mass, two-handed and full of gusto. What kind of teenager did that? He's smooth, I thought, smooth as the satin trim on my confirmation dress. After school, I headed across the street to Mrs. Col- Kostelnik's store for my daily sugar fix. Acne be darned. As I stood in front of the candy counter, deciding whether to blow my entire ten cents on a Hershey bar or just buy a nickel's worth of atomic fireballs, Anthony settled up next to me. I heard a joke about you today, he said. You want to hear it? Not especially, I said. He ignored me. How can you tell when Gina Sparsino is lying? He paused before delivering the punch. Her lips are moving, he laughed. I studied a box of milk duds. What, are you upset, he asked. I refused to answer. Snapping up the Hershey's bar and the milk duds, I stomped over to the cash register. Beside it sat a dish full of matchbooks for the grown-ups who came in to buy cigarettes. Anthony strolled over to the dish and nonchalantly pocketed a couple of books. I saw that, I said. Saw what? You took some matches. They're right there in your jacket pocket. So what? They're free, aren't they? But they're not for kids. I could tell Mrs. Kostelnik. Will she believe you? I hesitated. Anthony stepped close, so close I could feel his breath on my cheek. Don't you like the little ploof sound a match makes when it's lit, he asked. His expression turned all intense. Don't you like that whiff of sulfur? I looked away, trying to hide how frightened I suddenly felt. At that moment, Mrs. Kostelnik hollered across the shop. Can I help you, kids? I got what I came for, answered Anthony, and he pushed out the door and was gone. From then on, I made a point of avoiding Anthony. I refused to even glance in his direction during homeroom, much less talk to him. I quit buying candy at Mrs. Kostelnik's and instead walked home with Annette and her friends every day. I even started sitting with them at lunch just in case Anthony got the bright idea to share sandwiches or something. Annette wasn't exactly thrilled by my presence. Can't you find your own friends, she complained. But she didn't tell me to get lost. She couldn't. I was family. As the days passed without any more Anthony incidents, I began to relax. Just like everyone else in my class, he had forgotten all about me. But one night just before supper, there was a knock at our front door. I answered to find him standing there. What are you doing here, I asked. I'm collecting for my paper route, he answered smoothly. You don't have a paper route. He lifted his eyebrows. How would you know? You never talked to me. And I'm not starting now. I tried to shut the door, but he stuck out his foot, stopping me. Wait, he said, his voice dead calm. I have to ask you a question. Does my jacket smell like smoke? As I shook my head, confused. Anthony pointed across the street. There's a fire over there. You better call the fire department. I looked. Sure enough, black smoke billowed out of the Santushi's garage. Fire, I shrieked, dashing into the living room. Ma, call the fire department. Ma came to the door, wiping her hands on a dish rag and grumbling. Honestly, Gina, if this is another one of your stories, her voice trailed off at the sight of the flames now licking their way through the garage's tar paper roof. With a squeak, she dropped the rag and made a dash for the kitchen and the telephone. I turned back, but Anthony was gone. A cold, hard fear was growing in the pit of my stomach, a suspicion turning into knowledge too awful to put into words. Could Anthony have started that fire? It wasn't long before the entire neighborhood had left their suppers on the table to watch the firemen battle the flames. In the chaos, I saw Annette and Nick and Anthony. He stood mesmerized, the red and blue fire trucks' lights flashing eerily across his face. 
It gave me a creepy feeling the way his eyes were so wide and glassy. He looked like a cat staring at a bird. The next afternoon during religion class, Sister Mary Eunice asked us to make a list of our sins. A written list, she said. Binders around the room snapped open as we reached for the notebook paper. The purpose of this exercise is to examine your conscience so you will be prepared for your next confession, she continued. Please be honest and earnest. I was just wondering if I could spruce up my list to make a better story by throwing in a plane crash or maybe a movie star when Anthony squeezed into the seat beside me. I'm here to confess my sins, he whispered. Glancing around to make sure no one else was looking, he dropped a sheet of paper into my open binder. In his recognizable block handwriting were written three little words. I did it. Underneath was a drawing of Our Lady of Mercy School. It was being eaten alive by flames. I thought I was actually going to scream. I put my fist in my mouth as if to shove it back and then just coughed. Dry mouthed, I reached for his paper. But Anthony snatched it back. No, 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 he said, wiggling his finger. This is between me and God. And then he folded his confession and stuck it between the pages of his Bible. For the rest of the period, I sat frozen beside him, sick with the knowledge of what he had done. My heart and stomach crammed up into my throat. I had to tell someone. I had to tell Father Frank. When the bell rang, I bolted for the door. What's your hurry, Gina? Anthony called after me, taunting me. Stifling a cry, I fled. The hallway echoed with the slam of slamming lockers and kids shouting, Call you later or see you at baseball practice. I pushed my way toward the staircase. Annette and her friends were there waiting for me. I shoved past them. What's with you? Annette hollered after me. But I kept going, fighting my way down the crowded stairs and out the front door. Yes, thank God. Father Frank was there in his usual spot by the flagpole. Father, I cried, tears of relief filling my eyes. Father Frank. What is it, he asked. Gina, has something happened? Anthony Del Vincio, I did it, I blurted as a river of happy laughing students flowed around us. He said, fire to Our Lady of Mercy. Then I launched into my story. But I hadn't gotten any farther than the part about Mrs. Kostelnik's matchbooks when Father Frank stopped me. What is our Lord's ninth commandment, Gina, he asked. What did that have to do with Anthony? I fumbled for a moment before answering, um, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That is correct, said Father Frank. And do you know what that commandment means, Gina? It means it is a mortal, it is a mortal sin to tell lies. Sorry, I lost my page, guys. These untruths you are spreading about Anthony will result in your damnation unless you repent. But I'm not lying. Storytelling is lying. It's the same thing, replied Father Frank. He took my hands in his. You must ask God's forgiveness, Gina. You must confess. But, but... Go home now, he said. Go home and reflect on your sin. I took a few stumbling steps, and then I stopped and pressed my palms to my flushed cheeks. Why wouldn't he believe me? Didn't he know I would never, ever make up a story about something this serious? Panic fluttered in my chest. What should I do? What should I do? Anthony was waiting for me at the corner. Go away. I pushed past him and hurried down the sidewalk. He hurried after me. Whirling, I cried. Why won't you leave me alone? Because, he replied calmly, because why? Because you're the only person I can tell without getting in trouble, he said. I understood then. He needed an audience, someone to witness his deeds. If no one knew, then it was almost as if they had never happened. Stay away from me, I shouted, or I'll call the police. I ran, sobbing all the way home. Gina, is that you? Ma called as I burst through the front door and flung myself into my bedroom. Gina, leave me alone, I called back. I'm fine. 
Of course I wasn't, but if I told her what it was happening, she probably wouldn't believe me either. I dropped onto the edge of my bed, gulping big mouthfuls of air. Hugging myself tightly, I rocked back and forth, back and forth, until finally, slowly, the panic left. Still, a sense of dread remained. Anthony wasn't in homeroom the next morning. Looking at the empty seat across from me, I should have felt relief, but I didn't. Instead, I felt itchy and on edge. Halfway through... The period he appeared, making a big show of the Bible in his hand. Please excuse my tardiness, sister, he said as he slid into his chair, his face all false innocence. I was so busy memorizing my New Testament verses that I lost all track of time. Sister Mary Henry nodded understandingly. In her world, Anthony Delvicio could do no wrong. I watched him out of the corner of my eye as he smiled at some secret thought. The dimple in his cheek deepened. Minutes later, the classroom door began to clatter. Curious, Tommy DeLuca opened the door. Hey, there's smoke in the hallway, he hollered, just as a cloud of black smoke swirled into the classroom. Sister Mary Henry hurried over to where Tommy stood. Quickly, she slammed the door, but more smoke began seeping into the transom. Everyone looked nervously toward the teacher. Everyone, that is, but me. I slowly turned to Anthony, my eyes wide with horror. There was a moment, and then he winked. I leaped to my feet, the sudden movement knocking over my desk just as the fire alarm went off. Kids were scrambling now, bolting toward the classroom door. Years of fire drill practice instantly forgotten as the smoke of the room grew thicker and blacker. Get on your hands and knees, shouted Sister Mary Henry. Crawl out through the door, one after another. Everyone did as they were told. One by one, they disappeared into the churning darkness of the hallway. I raced to join them, but Anthony grabbed me. His strong arm held me back. Let me go, I twisted and struggled. Enjoy it, he shouted above the sounds of the fire. Enjoy it for one more minute. The room was growing hotter every second. The paint on the walls beginning to change from white to brown. Sister, I called weakly, choking and coughing. Then the big globe lights that hung from the ceiling exploded, sending a rain of glass crashing to the floor. Anthony let go of my arm and I fell to my knees. His Bible. In the chaos, it had been knocked to the floor. Now I snatched it up, held it over my head as if I could provide some sort of heavenly protection against the fire. But within seconds, its golden-edged pages began smoldering. They curled, became, became curling wisps that drifted to the floor. I put out my hand. The pages fell like snow-white flakes into my palm. So I did. So did a folded piece of paper, Anthony's confession. My fingers closed around it just as he grabbed my arm again, this time with less strength. He was making rasping, hacking sounds as he pulled me toward the windows. He wrestled one open and we hung our heads out, gulping the cold, fresh air. Below us on the asphalt, we could see Sister Mary Henry and our classmates. We could see the other students, too. Everyone had escaped, except us. I looked at Anthony. There was a feverish light in his eyes, a strange smile on his lips. And even in the room's oven-like heat, I shivered. Suddenly, with a bright orange flash and a loud boom, the fire exploded. It crashed in at the door and burst through the walls, and then everything was on fire. Desks, tables, books. My hair began to smoke. I could feel my nylons melting to my legs. Climb up here, shouted Anthony. He half dragged me out onto the wide window ledge. For a moment, we both perched there, looking down at the terrified faces below. Anthony reached over and took my clenched hand in his. This is fun, isn't it, he said, his voice raw. That's when the windows blew out, knocking us off the sill. I don't know how long I lay there on the blacktop unconscious. When I finally opened my eyes, I was looking up at Sister Mary Henry, my head resting in her lap. Father Frank bent over me, anointing my forehead with oil. Yea, I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Evil. I moved my blistered lips, forced words up from my parched throat. Anthony? 
He's alive, soothed Sister Mary Henry. Father Frank leaned in cl- even closer. Why, Gina? He asked, his kind eyes probing mine. Why did you do it? Anthony, a look of sadness washed over Father Frank's face. Oh, Gina, he sighed. Slowly, my blackened fingers relaxed, revealing a folded paper, its edges burned, the paper that had fallen from Anthony's Bible. Sister Mary, Mary Henry took the paper and opened it. I did it, she read aloud. She gasped, and I knew she recognized Anthony's handwriting. She turned to Father Frank and whispered something in his ear. Their eyes met and then slowly grew wide with understanding, just as mine closed for the last time. Gina fell silent. And slowly, Mike returned to himself. Now, remember, Mike is the kid that found in our first chapter, The Girl on the Road. He's the one that's in the um, graveyard of young adults who have died. And so they're each telling their story to him. And slowly, Mike returned to himself, the hazy edges of the ghost story rolling back like fog to reveal the present. Once again, he could see the gravestones bright in the moonlight, could feel the saddle shoes, cold and wet and lumpy, beneath him. Nothing had changed except for one thing. While Gina had told her story, the other ghosts had gathered around to listen, settling themselves onto a nearby gravestone or sitting cross-legged in the grass. They were close enough now for Mike to make out their expressions, some sad, others hopeful, still others pitying or sympathetic or, in the case of the boy stomping toward him, angry. Mike jerked back as the boy raised a fist, but the ghost whirled on Gina. So that's it? That's the end? What do you mean, she asked. You should have gotten even with that Anthony schmuck. You should have haunted him to his dying day. You know it doesn't work that way, said Gina. Besides, I'm sure it all came right in the end. Came right? You're the only person can make it come right. If there's one thing I learned from my 16 lousy years on earth, it's you only got yourself and nobody going to help. And I'll tell you something else. If it had been me, I'd have haunted that slob until he was just a shivering little bunny rabbit. Yeah, I'd have reduced him to a quaking mass of tapioca pudding. I'd have gotten my revenge. The boy turned his furious face toward Mike. Revenge, he said in a low voice. That's my story. How Johnny Novotny got his revenge and, he paused a second before continuing, how revenge got him. So when we read next time, it'll be the chapter's Johnny, and he was born in 1920 and died in 1936. On the day I died, this chapter is Gina. She was born in 1949 and died in 1964. Just so you get the complete picture, I guess I should start by telling you about the Chicago neighborhood I lived in. Mine didn't have a name like Hyde Park or Rosalind or Austin, but it was still a tight-knit place, what my Nona Rosa, who came over on the boat from Italy, called Communita. A community. It was the kind of place where people made Chianti in their basements and grew Roma tomatoes in the tiny yards behind their two flats. The kind of place where my pop, like most of the other men on our block, worked the assembly line over at the Schwinn bicycle plant, while my mom and the other neighbor ladies stayed home to do the dusting and the laundry and the daily shopping. I can still see them, those housewives, dragging their two-wheeled shopping carts along Chicago Avenue at D'Angelo's Produce that stopped to squeeze the cantaloupes and complained about the price of eggplant. Next door at Mr. Santolori's butcher shop, they'd gossip and haggle over the chops, hollering stuff like, This time try giving me one that ain't all fat. The kind of place where kids roller skated and played baseball and stayed outside until the streetlights came on, the signal that it was time to go home. And it was the kind of place where, if you earned a certain reputation, it stuck. 
Take Mrs. Gioletti, for instance. She was 78 and sun-dried as a raisin, but in my neighborhood, she was still a great beauty. Or Mr. Bianchi, who had been sober 10 years, but was still labeled a stone-cold drunk. Or me. In my neighborhood, I would forever be known as a liar. But I didn't tell lies. I swear, I told stories. They just came to me, stories about ships at sea or long-ago murders, or how our next-door neighbor, Mr. Giaboni, was really a German spy. They weren't big stories or mean stories. They weren't mean, meant to hurt anyone. They were just stories that with the teeniest, tiniest bits of truth buried in them. Fairy tales, really. Like the time I turned in a report claiming that President Kennedy had come back from the dead to tell me who had really shot him. You've got to admit it made better story than sticking to the boring old facts, didn't it? Or the time I bragged to the kids in my social studies class, I got a record player for Christmas when everyone knew my pop couldn't afford to put that much under the tree. The Beatles sent it to me themselves, I added. There was the sweetest little note from Ringo. It's amazing how one detail can make a story so much better. So, of course, I was telling a story that March morning in 1964, the morning when everything changed. You won't believe who I met coming out of the library last night, I said to my cousin Annette. We were walking to school. Annette, a few steps ahead of me, was trying to act like we weren't really together. Nick DeRosa, that much was true, but then I went on. He offered to carry my books home for me. Isn't that something? Nick DeRosa, homecoming king, senior class president, and Golden Gloves boxing championship offered to carry my books. Annette stopped and turned around. Right, Gina, yeah, I really believe that happened. That's what Nona Rosa calls preso con un grano di sale, or taking it with a grain of salt. People took everything I said with a grain of salt. Why can't you live in this world, Annette demanded. You know no one believes you. No one believes anything you say. Why do you keep making things up? How can I explain that my stories help me escape the dreary sameness of my life? The same old TV shows, the same old questions from my parents, the same old masticali on Thursdays and lasagna on Sundays. How could I tell her that for those moments when I was telling the story, I slipped into a shinier world and lived the life I really wanted? I just shrugged. Come on, she said with an exasperated sigh. We're going to be late. The sidewalks around St. Philomena swelled with kids. Patrol boys wearing those silly orange safety belts tooted their whistles and directed traffic while a couple of priests hung around the flagpole, sipping from coffee mugs and watching for fistfights. As we passed, Father Frank waved to us. I was tempted to stop and tell him how my three-legged cat, Claudio, had saved a drowning baby, but the rush of students pushing through the front doors kept me moving. Along with the other ninth graders, I climbed the wide wooden staircase to the fourth floor. In Sister Mary Henry's homeroom, Angela Moretti was showing off her Adipearl necklace again. This one, she was saying to a group of girls gathered around her, was given me on my last birthday, and this one was for my confirmation, and this one... I couldn't help myself. Tapping Angela on the shoulder, I said, I wish I had worn my pearl necklace today. I didn't admit it was plastic. Mine was given to be my Monona Rosa, not for any special occasion, just because. I paused then. I paused then. Further inspired, I added, Actually, to be accurate, I should say it was handed down to me since it's been in the family so long. Centuries, really. Ever since one of those old-time popes presented it to us back in the 1700s. Did you know that in Italy my family was royalty? Angela glared at me. Feeling good, I took my seat. That's when I noticed him, standing beside the blackboard. The new boy. Pulito com una nuvua spina. Sorry about my Italian guys. I'm not very good at this. That's what my Nona Rosa would have said, neat as a new pen. 
Unlike the other boys in class, the new boy wore the white shirt of his school uniform carefully tucked into his blue trousers that were creased as sharp as a razor. His necktie was knotted perfectly and his black leather shoes shone as if he had just rubbed them with Vaseline. He reminded me of one of those kids you'd see on the cover of Catholic Family Magazine. Too good to be true. He looked right at me, and I knew he'd overheard my story. Knew, too, from the way his ice-blue eyes narrowed that he was sizing me up. And then his lips twitched into a smirky sort of smile. Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands for attention. Class, she said, this is Anthony Del Vicio. Anthony comes to us from Our Lady of Mercy School. The room buzzed. We all knew about Our Lady of Mercy. Just last week, the school had mysteriously caught fire in the middle of the night. Even though only the annex had burned, it was enough to close the school and scatter its students all across the diocese. Poor Anthony, I thought it must be hard to lose your school. As he took the empty seat desk across from me, I smiled sympathetically at him. Liar, he said. His voice was soft and a little contemptuous. What? I stammered. But I'm better, he added. At the front of the room, Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands again. Gina, you know my rules about talking during class. Stand up, please. I felt myself go hot, but before I could stand, Anthony rose. He looked at the nun, his eyes wide and full of innocence. I'm afraid this is my fault, sister, he lied. I asked. Gina, is it? I asked Gina to remind me of your name. He managed to bless. I was too embarrassed to ask you myself. I mean, after all the kindness you've shown me, it felt so rude to have forgotten it. He smiled then, a single dimple appearing in his cheek. Please forgive me, sister. It won't happen again. He touched his hands to his chest. I promise. Sister Mary Henry bought every word. Thank you for your honesty, Anthony, she practically cooed. That, Anthony said to me as he sat down, is how it's done. Anthony ignored me for the rest of the day, even though we had lunch and religion class together. I watched him, though. Strange, but considering this was his first day at a new school, he didn't look nervous or confused. Not the teensy-weensiest little bit. In the hall between classes, he whistled at Angela Moretti, and in the cafeteria, he went right up to Nick DeRosa and thumped him on the back like they were old friends. He even shook Father Frank's hand the way my pop always did on Sundays after Mass, two-handed and full of gusto. What kind of teenager did that? He's smooth, I thought, smooth as the satin trim on my confirmation dress. After school, I headed across the street to Mrs. Kostelnik's store for my daily sugar fix. Acne be darned. As I stood in front of the candy counter, deciding whether to blow my entire ten cents on a Hershey bar or just buy a nickel's worth of atomic fireballs, Anthony settled up next to me. I heard a joke about you today, he said. You want to hear it? Not especially, I said. He ignored me. How can you tell when Gina Sparsino is lying? He paused before delivering the punch. Her lips are moving, he laughed. I studied a box of milk duds. What, are you upset, he asked. I refused to answer. Snapping up the Hershey's bar and the milk duds, I stomped over to the cash register. Beside it sat a dish full of matchbooks for the grown-ups who came in to buy cigarettes. Anthony strolled over to the dish and nonchalantly pocketed a couple of books. I saw that, I said. Saw what? You took some matches. They're right there in your jacket pocket. So what? They're free, aren't they? But they're not for kids. I could tell Mrs. Kostelnik. Will she believe you? I hesitated. Anthony stepped close, so close I could feel his breath on my cheek. Don't you like the little ploof sound a match makes when it's lit, he asked. His expression turned all intense. Don't you like that whiff of sulfur? I looked away, trying to hide how frightened I suddenly felt. At that moment, Mrs. Kostelnik hollered across the shop. Can I help you, kids? 
I got what I came for, answered Anthony, and he pushed out the door and was gone. From then on, I made a point of avoiding Anthony. I refused to even glance in his direction during homeroom, much less talk to him. I quit buying candy at Mrs. Kolstelnik's and instead walked home with Annette and her friends every day. I even started sitting with them at lunch, just in case Anthony got the bright idea to share sandwiches or something. Annette wasn't exactly thrilled by my presence. Can't you find your own friends, she complained. But she didn't tell me to get lost. She couldn't. I was family. As the days passed without any more Anthony incidents, I began to relax. Just like everyone else in my class, he had forgotten all about me. But one night just before supper, there was a knock at our front door. I answered to find him standing there. What are you doing here, I asked. I'm collecting for my paper route, he answered smoothly. You don't have a paper route. He lifted his eyebrows. How would you know? You never talked to me. And I'm not starting now. I tried to shut the door, but he stuck out his foot, stopping me. Wait, he said, his voice dead calm. I have to ask you a question. Does my jacket smell like smoke? As I shook my head, confused. Anthony pointed across the street. There's a fire over there. You better call the fire department. I looked. Sure enough, black smoke billowed out of the Santushi's garage. Fire, I shrieked, dashing into the living room. Ma, call the fire department. Ma came to the door, wiping her hands on a dish rag and grumbling. Honestly, Gina, if this is another one of your stories. Her voice trailed off at the sight of the flames now licking their way through the garage's tar paper roof. With a squeak, she dropped the rag and made a dash for the kitchen and the telephone. I turned back, but Anthony was gone. A cold, hard fear was growing in the pit of my stomach, a suspicion turning into knowledge too awful to put into words. Could Anthony have started that fire? It wasn't long before the entire neighborhood had left their suppers on the table to watch the firemen battle the flames. In the chaos, I saw Annette and Nick and Anthony. He stood mesmerized, the red and blue fire trucks' lights flashing eerily across his face. It gave me a creepy feeling the way his eyes were so wide and glassy. He looked like a cat staring at a bird. The next afternoon during religion class, Sister Mary Eunice asked us to make a list of our sins. A written list, she said. Binders around the room snapped open as we reached for the notebook paper. The purpose of this exercise is to examine your conscience so you will be prepared for your next confession, she continued. Please be honest and earnest. I was just wondering if I could spruce up my list to make a better story by throwing in a plane crash or maybe a movie star when Anthony squeezed into the seat beside me. I'm here to confess my sins, he whispered. Glancing around to make sure no one else was looking, he dropped a sheet of paper into my open binder. In his recognizable block handwriting were written three little words. I did it. Underneath was a drawing of Our Lady of Mercy School. It was being eaten alive by flames. I thought I was actually going to scream. I put my fist in my mouth as if to shove it back and then just coughed. Dry mouthed, I reached for his paper. But Anthony snatched it back. No, 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 he said, wiggling his finger. This is between me and God. And then he folded his confession and stuck it between the pages of his Bible. For the rest of the period, I sat frozen beside him, sick with the knowledge of what he had done. My heart and stomach crammed up into my throat. I had to tell someone. I had to tell Father Frank. When the bell rang, I bolted for the door. What's your hurry, Gina? Anthony called after me, taunting me. Stifling a cry, I fled. The hallway echoed with the slam of slamming lockers and kids shouting, Call you later, or see you at baseball practice. I pushed my way toward the staircase. Annette and her friends were there waiting for me. I shoved past them.
what's with you? Annette hollered after me. But I kept going, fighting my way down the crowded stairs and out the front door. Yes, thank God. Father Frank was there in his usual spot by the flagpole. Father, I cried, tears of relief filling my eyes. Father Frank. What is it, he asked. Gina, has something happened? Anthony Del Vincio, I did it, I blurted as a river of happy laughing students flowed around us. He set fire to Our Lady of Mercy. Then I launched into my story. But I hadn't gotten any farther than the part about Mrs. Kostelnik's matchbooks when Father Frank stopped me. What is our Lord's ninth commandment, Gina, he asked. What did that have to do with Anthony? I fumbled for a moment before answering, um, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That is correct, said Father Frank. And do you know what that commandment means, Gina? It means it is a mortal, it is a mortal sin to tell lies. Sorry, I lost my page, guys. These untruths you are spreading about Anthony will result in your damnation unless you repent. But I'm not lying. Storytelling is lying. It's the same thing, replied Father Frank. He took my hands in his. You must ask God's forgiveness, Gina. You must confess. But, but, go home now, he said. Go home and reflect on your sin. I took a few stumbling steps, and then I stopped and pressed my palms to my flushed cheeks. Why wouldn't he believe me? Didn't he know I would never, ever make up a story about something this serious? Panic fluttered in my chest. What should I do? What should I do? Anthony was waiting for me at the corner. Go away. I pushed past him and hurried down the sidewalk. He hurried after me. Whirling, I cried. Why won't you leave me alone? Because, he replied calmly. Because why? Because you're the only person I can tell without getting in trouble, he said. I understood then. He needed an audience, someone to witness his deeds. If no one knew, then it was almost as if they had never happened. Stay away from me, I shouted, or I'll call the police. I ran, sobbing all the way home. Gina, is that you? Ma called as I burst through the front door and flung myself into my bedroom. Gina, leave me alone, I called back. I'm fine. Of course I wasn't, but if I told her what was happening, she probably wouldn't believe me either. I dropped onto the edge of my bed, gulping big mouthfuls of air. Hugging myself tightly, I rocked back and forth, back and forth, until finally, slowly, the panic left. Still, a sense of dread remained. Anthony wasn't in homeroom the next morning. Looking at the empty seat across from me, I should have felt relief, but I didn't. Instead, I felt itchy and on edge. Halfway through the period, he appeared, making a big show of the Bible in his hand. Please excuse my tardiness, sister, he said as he slid into his chair, his face all false innocence. I was so busy memorizing my New Testament verses that I lost all track of time. Sister Mary Henry nodded understandingly. In her world, Anthony Delvicio could do no wrong. I watched him out of the corner of my eye as he smiled at some secret thought. The dimple in his cheek deepened. Minutes later, the classroom door began to clatter. Curious, Tommy DeLuca opened the door. Hey, there's smoke in the hallway, he hollered, just as a cloud of black smoke swirled into the classroom. Sister Mary Henry hurried over to where Tommy stood. Quickly, she slammed the door, but more smoke began seeping into the transom. Everyone looked nervously toward the teacher. Everyone, that is, but me. I slowly turned to Anthony, my eyes wide with horror. There was a moment, and then he winked. I leaped to my feet, the sudden movement knocking over my desk just as the fire alarm went off. Kids were scrambling now, bolting toward the classroom door. Years of fire drill practice instantly forgotten as the smoke of the room grew thicker and blacker. Get on your hands and knees, shouted Sister Mary Henry. Crawl out to the door, one after another. Everyone did as they were told. One by one, they disappeared into the churning darkness of the hallway. I raced to join them, but Anthony grabbed me. His strong arm held me back. Let me go, I twisted and struggled. 
Enjoy it, he shouted above the sounds of the fire. Enjoy it for one more minute. The room was growing hotter every second. The paint on the walls beginning to change from white to brown. Sister, I called weakly, choking and coughing. Then the big globe lights that hung from the ceiling exploded, sending a rain of glass crashing to the floor. Anthony let go of my arm and I fell to my knees. His Bible. In the chaos, it had been knocked to the floor. Now I snatched it up, held it over my head as if I could provide some sort of heavenly protection against the fire. But within seconds, its golden edge pages began smoldering. They curled, became, became curling wisps that drifted to the floor. I put out my hand. The pages fell like snow white flakes into my palm. So I did, so did a folded piece of paper. Anthony's confession. My fingers closed around it just as he grabbed my arm again, this time with less strength. He was making rasping, hacking sounds as he pulled me toward the windows. He wrestled one open and we hung our heads out, gulping the cold, fresh air. Below us on the asphalt, we could see Sister Mary Henry and our classmates. We could see the other students, too. Everyone had escaped, except us. I looked at Anthony. There was a feverish light in his eyes, a strange smile on his lips. And even in the room's oven-like heat, I shivered. Suddenly, with a bright orange flash and a loud boom, the fire exploded. It crashed in at the door and burst through the walls, and then everything was on fire. Desks, tables, books. My hair began to smoke. I could feel my nylons melting to my legs. Climb up here, shouted Anthony. He half dragged me out onto the wide window ledge. For a moment, we both perched there, looking down at the terrified faces below. Anthony reached over and took my clenched hand in his. This is fun, isn't it, he said, his voice raw. That's when the windows blew out, knocking us off the sill. I don't know how long I lay there on the blacktop unconscious. When I finally opened my eyes, I was looking up at Sister Mary Henry, my head resting in her lap. Father Frank bent over me, anointing my forehead with oil. Yea, I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I will feel, fear no evil. Evil. I moved my blistered lips, forced words up from my parched throat. Anthony, he's alive, soothed Sister Mary Henry. Father Frank leaned in clo even closer. Why, Gina? He asked, his kind eyes probing mine. Why did you do it? Anthony. A look of sadness washed over Father Frank's face. Oh, Gina, he sighed. Slowly, my blackened fingers relaxed, revealing a folded paper, its edges burned, the paper that had fallen from Anthony's Bible. Sister Mary, Mary Henry took the paper and opened it. I did it, she read aloud. She gasped, and I knew she recognized Anthony's handwriting. She turned to Father Frank and whispered something in his ear. Their eyes met and then slowly grew wide with understanding, just as mine closed for the last time. Gina fell silent. And slowly, Mike returned to himself. Now, remember, Mike is the kid that found in our first chapter, The Girl on the Road. He's the one that's in the um, graveyard of young adults who have died. And so they're each telling their story to him. And slowly, Mike returned to himself, the hazy edges of the ghost story rolling back like fog to reveal the present. Once again, he could see the gravestones bright in the moonlight, could feel the saddle shoes, cold and wet and lumpy, beneath him. Nothing had changed except for one thing. While Gina had told her story, the other ghosts had gathered around to listen, setting, settling themselves onto a nearby gravestone or sitting cross-legged in the grass. They were close enough now for Mike to make out their expressions. Some sad, others hopeful, still others pitying or sympathetic or, in the case of the boy stomping toward him, angry. Mike jerked back as the boy raised a fist, but the ghost whirled on Gina. So that's it? That's the end? What do you mean, she asked. You should have gotten even with that Anthony schmuck. You should have haunted him to his dying day. You know it doesn't work that way, said Gina. Besides, I'm sure it all came right in the end. 
came right, you're the only person can make it come right. If there's one thing I learned from my 16 lousy years on earth, it's you only got yourself and nobody going to help. And I'll tell you something else. If it had been me, I'd have haunted that slob until he was just a shivering little bunny rabbit. Yeah, I'd have reduced him to a quaking mass of tapioca pudding. I'd have gotten my revenge. The boy turned his furious face toward Mike. Revenge, he said in a low voice. That's my story. How Johnny Novani got his revenge and, he paused a second before continuing, how revenge got him. So when we read next time, it'll be the chapter's Johnny, and he was born in 1920 and died in 1936. On the day I died, this chapter is Gina. She was born in 1949 and died in 1964. Just so you get the complete picture, I guess I should start by telling you about the Chicago neighborhood I lived in. Mine didn't have a name like Hyde Park or Rosalind or Austin, but it was still a tight-knit place, what my Nona Rosa, who came over on the boat from Italy, called Communita, a community. It was the kind of place where people made Chianti in their basements and grew Roma tomatoes in the tiny yards behind their two flats. The kind of place where my pop, like most of the other men on our block, worked the assembly line over at the Schwinn bicycle plant, while my mom and the other neighbor ladies stayed home to do the dusting and the laundry and the daily shopping. I can still see them, those housewives, dragging their two-wheeled shopping carts along Chicago Avenue, at D'Angelo's Produce that stopped to squeeze the cantaloupes and complained about the price of eggplant. Next door at Mr. Santalori's butcher shop, they'd gossip and haggle over the chops, hollering stuff like, This time, try giving me one that ain't all fat. The kind of place where kids roller skated and played baseball and stayed outside until the streetlights came on, the signal that it was time to go home. And it was the kind of place where, if you earned a certain reputation, it stuck. Take Mrs. Gioletti, for instance. She was 78 and sun-dried as a raisin, but in my neighborhood, she was still a great beauty. Or Mr. Bianchi, who had been sober 10 years but was still labeled a stone-cold drunk. Or me. In my neighborhood, I would forever be known as a liar. But I didn't tell lies, I swear. I told stories. They just came to me, stories about ships at sea or long-ago murders, or how our next-door neighbor, Mr. Giaboni, was really a German spy. They weren't big stories or mean stories. They weren't mean, meant to hurt anyone. They were just stories that, with the teeniest, tiniest bits of truth buried in them. Fairy tales, really. Like the time I turned in a report claiming that President Kennedy had come back from the dead to tell me who had really shot him. You've got to admit it made better story than sticking to the boring old facts, didn't it? Or the time I bragged to the kids in my social studies class, I got a record player for Christmas when everyone knew my pop couldn't afford to put that much under the tree. The Beatles sent it to me themselves, I added. There was the sweetest little note from Ringo. It's amazing how one detail can make a story so much better. So, of course, I was telling a story that March morning in 1964, the morning when everything changed. You won't believe who I met coming out of the library last night, I said to my cousin Annette. We were walking to school. Annette, a few steps ahead of me, was trying to act like we weren't really together. Nick DeRosa. That much was true, but then I went on. He offered to carry my books home for me. Isn't that something? Nick DeRosa, homecoming king, senior class president, and Golden Gloves boxing championship offered to carry my books. Annette stopped and turned around. Right, Gina, yeah, I really believe that happened. That's what Nona Rosa calls preso con un grano di sale, or taking it with a grain of salt. People took everything I said with a grain of salt. 
Why can't you live in this world, Annette demanded. You know no one believes you. No one believes anything you say. Why do you keep making things up? How can I explain that my stories help me escape the dreary sameness of my life? The same old TV shows, the same old questions from my parents, the same old Mastacali on Thursdays and lasagna on Sundays. How could I tell her that for those moments when I was telling the story, I slipped into a shinier world and lived the life I really wanted? I just shrugged. Come on, she said with an exasperated sigh. We're going to be late. The sidewalks around St. Philomena swelled with kids. Patrol boys wearing those silly orange safety belts tooted their whistles and directed traffic while a couple of priests hung around the flagpole, sipping from coffee mugs and watching for fistfights. As we passed, Father Frank waved to us. I was tempted to stop and tell him how my three-legged cat, Claudio, had saved a drowning baby, but the rush of students pushing through the front doors kept me moving. Along with the other ninth graders, I climbed the wide wooden staircase to the fourth floor. In Sister Mary Henry's homeroom, Angela Moretti was showing off her Adipearl necklace again. This one, she was saying to a group of girls gathered around her, was given me on my last birthday, and this one was for my confirmation, and this one... I couldn't help myself. Tapping Angela on the shoulder, I said, I wish I had worn my pearl necklace today. I didn't admit it was plastic. Mine was given to be my Monona Rosa, not for any special occasion, just because. I paused then. I paused then. Further inspired, I added, Actually, to be accurate, I should say it was handed down to me since it's been in the family so long. Centuries, really. Ever since one of those old-time popes presented it to us back in the 1700s. Did you know that in Italy my family was royalty? Angela glared at me. Feeling good, I took my seat. That's when I noticed him, standing beside the blackboard. The new boy. Pulito com una nuvua spina. Sorry about my Italian guys. I'm not very good at this. That's what my Nona Rosa would have said, neat as a new pin. Unlike the other boys in class, the new boy wore the white shirt of his school uniform carefully tucked into his blue trousers that were creased as sharp as a razor. His necktie was knotted perfectly and his black leather shoes shone as if he had just rubbed them with Vaseline. He reminded me of one of those kids you'd see on the cover of Catholic Family Magazine. Too good to be true. He looked right at me, and I knew he'd overheard my story. Knew, too, from the way his ice-blue eyes narrowed that he was sizing me up. And then his lips twitched into a smirky sort of smile. Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands for attention. Class, she said, this is Anthony Del Vicio. Anthony comes to us from Our Lady of Mercy School. The room buzzed. We all knew about Our Lady of Mercy. Just last week, the school had mysteriously caught fire in the middle of the night. Even though only the annex had burned, it was enough to close the school and scatter its students all across the diocese. Poor Anthony, I thought it must be hard to lose your school. As he took the empty seat desk across from me, I smiled sympathetically at him. Liar, he said. His voice was soft and a little contemptuous. What? I stammered. But I'm better, he added. At the front of the room, Sister Mary Henry clapped her hands again. Gina, you know my rules about talking during class. Stand up, please. I felt myself go hot, but before I could stand, Anthony rose. He looked at the nun, his eyes wide and full of innocence. I'm afraid this is my fault, sister, he lied. I asked. Gina, is it? I asked Gina to remind me of your name. He managed to bless. I was too embarrassed to ask you myself. I mean, after all the kindness you've shown me, it felt so rude to have forgotten it. He smiled then, a single dimple appearing in his cheek. Please forgive me, sister. It won't happen again. He touched his hands to his chest. I promise. Sister Mary Henry bought every word. Thank you for your honesty, Anthony, she practically cooed. That, Anthony said to me as he sat down, is how it's done. 
Anthony ignored me for the rest of the day, even though we had lunch and religion class together. I watched him, though. Strange, but considering this was his first day at a new school, he didn't look nervous or confused. Not the teensy-weensiest little bit. In the hall between classes, he whistled at Angela Moretti, and in the cafeteria, he went right up to Nick DeRosa and thumped him on the back like they were old friends. He even shook Father Frank's hand the way my pop always did on Sundays after Mass, two-handed and full of gusto. What kind of teenager did that? He's smooth, I thought, smooth as the satin trim on my confirmation dress. After school, I headed across the street to Mrs. Kostelnik's store for my daily sugar fix. Acne be darned. As I stood in front of the candy counter, deciding whether to blow my entire ten cents on a Hershey bar or just buy a nickel's worth of atomic fireballs, Anthony settled up next to me. I heard a joke about you today, he said. You want to hear it? Not especially, I said. He ignored me. How can you tell when Gina Sparsino is lying? He paused before delivering the punch. Her lips are moving, he laughed. I studied a box of milk duds. What, are you upset, he asked. I refused to answer. Snapping up the Hershey's bar and the milk duds, I stomped over to the cash register. Beside it sat a dish full of matchbooks for the grown-ups who came in to buy cigarettes. Anthony strolled over to the dish and nonchalantly pocketed a couple of books. I saw that, I said. Saw what? You took some matches. They're right there in your jacket pocket. So what? They're free, aren't they? But they're not for kids. I could tell Mrs. Kostelnik. Will she believe you? I hesitated. Anthony stepped close, so close I could feel his breath on my cheek. Don't you like the little ploof sound a match makes when it's lit, he asked. His expression turned all intense. Don't you like that whiff of sulfur? I looked away, trying to hide how frightened I suddenly felt. At that moment, Mrs. Kostelnik hollered across the shop. Can I help you, kids? I got what I came for, answered Anthony, and he pushed out the door and was gone. From then on, I made a point of avoiding Anthony. I refused to even glance in his direction during homeroom, much less talk to him. I quit buying candy at Mrs. Kostelnik's and instead walked home with Annette and her friends every day. I even started sitting with them at lunch just in case Anthony got the bright idea to share sandwiches or something. Annette wasn't exactly thrilled by my presence. Can't you find your own friends, she complained. But she didn't tell me to get lost. She couldn't. I was family. As the days passed without any more Anthony incidents, I began to relax. Just like everyone else in my class, he had forgotten all about me. But one night just before supper, there was a knock at our front door. I answered to find him standing there. What are you doing here, I asked. I'm collecting for my paper route, he answered smoothly. You don't have a paper route. He lifted his eyebrows. How would you know? You never talked to me. And I'm not starting now. I tried to shut the door, but he stuck out his foot, stopping me. Wait, he said, his voice dead calm. I have to ask you a question. Does my jacket smell like smoke? As I shook my head, confused. Anthony pointed across the street. There's a fire over there. You better call the fire department. I looked. Sure enough, black smoke billowed out of the Santushi's garage. Fire, I shrieked, dashing into the living room. Ma, call the fire department. Ma came to the door, wiping her hands on a dish rag and grumbling. Honestly, Gina, if this is another one of your stories, her voice trailed off at the sight of the flames now licking their way through the garage's tar paper roof. With a squeak, she dropped the rag and made a dash for the kitchen and the telephone. I turned back, but Anthony was gone. A cold, hard fear was growing in the pit of my stomach, a suspicion turning into knowledge too awful to put into words. Could Anthony have started that fire?
It wasn't long before the entire neighborhood had left their suppers on the table to watch the firemen battle the flames. In the chaos, I saw Annette and Nick and Anthony. He stood mesmerized, the red and blue fire trucks' lights flashing eerily across his face. It gave me a creepy feeling the way his eyes were so wide and glassy. He looked like a cat staring at a bird. The next afternoon during religion class, Sister Mary Eunice asked us to make a list of our sins. A written list, she said. Binders around the room snapped open as we reached for the notebook paper. The purpose of this exercise is to examine your conscience so you will be prepared for your next confession, she continued. Please be honest and earnest. I was just wondering if I could spruce up my list to make a better story by throwing in a plane crash or maybe a movie star when Anthony squeezed into the seat beside me. I'm here to confess my sins, he whispered. Glancing around to make sure no one else was looking, he dropped a sheet of paper into my open binder. In his recognizable block handwriting were written three little words. I did it. Underneath was a drawing of Our Lady of Mercy School. It was being eaten alive by flames. I thought I was actually going to scream. I put my fist in my mouth as if to shove it back and then just coughed. Dry mouthed, I reached for his paper. But Anthony snatched it back. No, 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 he said, wiggling his finger. This is between me and God. And then he folded his confession and stuck it between the pages of his Bible. For the rest of the period, I sat frozen beside him, sick with the knowledge of what he had done. My heart and stomach crammed up into my throat. I had to tell someone. I had to tell Father Frank. When the bell rang, I bolted for the door. What's your hurry, Gina? Anthony called after me, taunting me. Stifling a cry, I fled. The hallway echoed with the slam of slamming lockers and kids shouting, Call you later or see you at baseball practice. I pushed my way toward the staircase. Annette and her friends were there waiting for me. I shoved past them. What's with you? Annette hollered after me. But I kept going, fighting my way down the crowded stairs and out the front door. Yes, thank God. Father Frank was there in his usual spot by the flagpole. Father, I cried, tears of relief filling my eyes. Father Frank. What is it, he asked. Gina, has something happened? Anthony Del Vincio, I did it, I blurted as a river of happy laughing students flowed around us. He set fire to Our Lady of Mercy. Then I launched into my story. But I hadn't gotten any farther than the part about Mrs. Kostelnik's matchbooks when Father Frank stopped me. What is our Lord's ninth commandment, Gina, he asked. What did that have to do with Anthony? I fumbled for a moment before answering, Um, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That is correct, said Father Frank. And do you know what that commandment means, Gina? It means it is a mortal, it is a mortal sin to tell lies. Sorry, I lost my page, guys. These untruths you are spreading about Anthony will result in your damnation unless you repent. But I'm not lying. Storytelling is lying. It's the same thing, replied Father Frank. He took my hands in his. You must ask God's forgiveness, Gina. You must confess. But, but... Go home now, he said. Go home and reflect on your sin. I took a few stumbling steps, and then I stopped and pressed my palms to my flushed cheeks. Why wouldn't he believe me? Didn't he know I would never, ever make up a story about something this serious? Panic fluttered in my chest. What should I do? What should I do? Anthony was waiting for me at the corner. Go away. I pushed past him and hurried down the sidewalk. He hurried after me. Whirling, I cried. Why won't you leave me alone? Because, he replied calmly, because why? Because you're the only person I can tell without getting in trouble, he said. 
I understood then. He needed an audience, someone to witness his deeds. If no one knew, then it was almost as if they had never happened. Stay away from me, I shouted, or I'll call the police. I ran, sobbing all the way home. Gina, is that you? Ma called as I burst through the front door and flung myself into my bedroom. Gina, leave me alone, I called back. I'm fine. Of course I wasn't, but if I told her what was happening, she probably wouldn't believe me either. I dropped onto the edge of my bed, gulping big mouthfuls of air. Hugging myself tightly, I rocked back and forth, back and forth, until finally, slowly, the panic left. Still, a sense of dread remained. Anthony wasn't in homeroom the next morning. Looking at the empty seat across from me, I should have felt relief, but I didn't. Instead, I felt itchy and on edge. Halfway through... The period he appeared, making a big show of the Bible in his hand. Please excuse my tardiness, sister, he said as he slid into his chair, his face all false innocence. I was so busy memorizing my New Testament verses that I lost all track of time. Sister Mary Henry nodded understandingly. In her world, Anthony Del Vicio could do no wrong. I watched him out of the corner of my eye as he smiled at some secret thought. The dimple in his cheek deepened. Minutes later, the classroom door began to clatter. Curious, Tommy DeLuca opened the door. Hey, there's smoke in the hallway, he hollered, just as a cloud of black smoke swirled into the classroom. Sister Mary Henry hurried over to where Tommy stood. Quickly, she slammed the door, but more smoke began seeping into the transom. Everyone looked nervously toward the teacher. Everyone, that is, but me. I slowly turned to Anthony, my eyes wide with horror. There was a moment, and then he winked. I leaped to my feet, the sudden movement knocking over my desk just as the fire alarm went off. Kids were scrambling now, bolting toward the classroom door. Years of fire drill practice instantly forgotten as the smoke of the room grew thicker and blacker. Get on your hands and knees, shouted Sister Mary Henry. Crawl out to the door, one after another. Everyone did as they were told. One by one, they disappeared into the churning darkness of the hallway. I raced to join them, but Anthony grabbed me. His strong arm held me back. Let me go, I twisted and struggled. Enjoy it, he shouted above the sounds of the fire. Enjoy it for one more minute. The room was growing hotter every second. The paint on the walls beginning to change from white to brown. Sister, I called weakly, choking and coughing. Then the big globe lights that hung from the ceiling exploded, sending a rain of glass crashing to the floor. Anthony let go of my arm and I fell to my knees. His Bible. In the chaos, it had been knocked to the floor. Now I snatched it up, held it over my head as if I could provide some sort of heavenly protection against the fire. But within seconds, its golden-edged pages began smoldering. They curled, became, became curling wisps that drifted to the floor. I put out my hand. The pages fell like snow-white flakes into my palm. So I did. So did a folded piece of paper, Anthony's confession. My fingers closed around it just as he grabbed my arm again, this time with less strength. He was making rasping, hacking sounds as he pulled me toward the windows. He wrestled one open and we hung our heads out, gulping the cold, fresh air. Below us on the asphalt, we could see Sister Mary Henry and our classmates. We could see the other students, too. Everyone had escaped, except us. I looked at Anthony. There was a feverish light in his eyes, a strange smile on his lips. And even in the room's oven-like heat, I shivered. Suddenly, with a bright orange flash and a loud boom, the fire exploded. It crashed in at the door and burst through the walls, and then everything was on fire. Desks, tables, books. My hair began to smoke. I could feel my nylons melting to my legs. Climb up here, shouted Anthony. He half dragged me out onto the wide window ledge. For a moment, we both perched there, looking down at the terrified faces below. Anthony reached over and took my clenched hand in his. This is fun, isn't it, he said, his voice raw. That's when the windows blew out, knocking us off the sill. 
I don't know how long I lay there on the blacktop unconscious. When I finally opened my eyes, I was looking up at Sister Mary Henry, my head resting in her lap. Father Frank bent over me, anointing my forehead with oil. Yea, I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Evil. I moved my blistered lips, forced words up from my parched throat. Anthony? He's alive, soothed Sister Mary Henry. Father Frank leaned in clo- even closer. Why, Gina? He asked, his kind eyes probing mine. Why did you do it? Anthony. A look of sadness washed over Father Frank's face. Oh, Gina, he sighed. Slowly, my blackened fingers relaxed, revealing a folded paper, its edges burned, the paper that had fallen from Anthony's Bible. Sister Mary, Mary Henry took the paper and opened it. I did it, she read aloud. She gasped, and I knew she recognized Anthony's handwriting. She turned to Father Frank and whispered something in his ear. Their eyes met and then slowly grew wide with understanding, just as mine closed for the last time. Gina fell silent. And slowly, Mike returned to himself. Now, remember, Mike is the kid that found in our first chapter, The Girl on the Road. He's the one that's in the um, graveyard of young adults who have died. And so they're each telling their story to him. And slowly, Mike returned to himself, the hazy edges of the ghost story rolling back like fog to reveal the present. Once again, he could see the gravestones bright in the moonlight, could feel the saddle shoes, cold and wet and lumpy, beneath him. Nothing had changed except for one thing. While Gina had told her story, the other ghosts had gathered around to listen, settling themselves onto a nearby gravestone or sitting cross-legged in the grass. They were close enough now for Mike to make out their expressions, some sad, others hopeful, still others pitying or sympathetic or, in the case of the boy stomping toward him, angry. Mike jerked back as the boy raised a fist, but the ghost whirled on Gina. So that's it? That's the end? What do you mean, she asked. You should have gotten even with that Anthony schmuck. You should have haunted him to his dying day. You know it doesn't work that way, said Gina. Besides, I'm sure it all came right in the end. Came right? You're the only person can make it come right. If there's one thing I learned from my 16 lousy years on earth, it's you only got yourself and nobody going to help. And I'll tell you something else. If it had been me, I'd have haunted that slob until he was just a shivering little bunny rabbit. Yeah, I'd have reduced him to a quaking mass of tapioca pudding. I'd have gotten my revenge. The boy turned his furious face toward Mike. Revenge, he said in a low voice. That's my story. How Johnny Novotny got his revenge and, he paused a second before continuing, how revenge got him. So when we read next time, it'll be the chapter is Johnny. And he was born in 1920 and died in 1936.